Genre. It's Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today, we're continuing our mini-series on the Scream franchise with the supposed conclusion to the meta-slasher trilogy, theoretical trilogy, 2000's Scream 3. And we have a guest joining us to talk about alternate concepts, wacky hijinks, and ill-advised cameos, his fellow podcaster, Niall McGowan. Welcome, Niall. Hey, I'm hoping this isn't an ill-advised cameo, uh, me popping on the show here. <laughs> this is a little more than a cameo, I would say. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, let's let's talk about the Scream franchise. Niall, what is your... Uh, what is your history with the Scream franchise? Oh, I should say, like I am, I'm all in on Scream as mm-hmm. in everything to do with it. Uh, I'm. But I guess I would have first saw it when I was like nine or ten. Mm-hmm. I remember being one of those things like when my brother would always get movie magazines, Empire Magazine, and stuff like that would be around the house. And I was kind of it was that thing of like reading feature like features on films that I was too young to go to the cinema to see. And I remember Scream sticking out to me because it's like that's oh, the it's Monica from Friends is in pictures, but she's all bloody <laughs> and stuff. And then I remember the the picture of Drew Barrymore's boyfriend been like strapped to the chair, like got really sticking out. Like what the hell's what what's happening to this guy? What's going on in this film? <laughs> and then my, I think my mother got it. She rented it on video when it came out, and I sneak watched it. When my parents went to, mm. it was very, very Irish Catholic. My parents went to mass on the Sunday morning, so I watched, I sneak watched Scream when they were out. The opposite of church, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, absolutely loved it. Then my neighbor, he got a copy of it for his birthday, so I watched it all the time over at his. And yeah, got so deeply, like really deeply invested in, just like oh, that first movie to this day. Like rewatched it recently, still perfect. Like absolutely love it. Yeah, and uh, to the point of then. I, I sneaked in to Scream 2 because that was like, what, 98, I guess? Seven. 97. So, Seven. yeah. But, yep. but, yeah, you get 10, 10 or 11 at that point. And uh, yeah, we had a whole uh, bought a ticket to see US Marshals with Tommy Lee Jones and then <laughs> quickly sneaked into Scream 2. And um, yeah, but uh, Scream 2 at the time, absolutely loved that. For, loved it for several years afterwards but then yeah then around the time a couple of years later scream 3 came around and i think i was i was entered into my um film snobbery phase where i was just like oh, i really watch classic films and think you know the, the new hollywood <laughs> stuff and all that kind of thing and i had an inherent uh cynicism about scream 3 because i knew just from having seen horror movies like well these things get worse as they go on and it's like don't push of your course. luck you know that kind of that kind of a vibe, and it was a real thing. Then of um, I think I remember I remember distinctly coming out, and I think American Psycho was out like the same month. 
So one of these film, one of oh, these wow. two horror movies was getting a lot of attention, and the other one was Scream Three, uh, and it was just sort of really like, what's what's up with Courtney Cox's hair? Like, what the what, what is this thing? And the reviews were just <laughs> dismal. And I think I, I waited to watch it in VHS and hated it, like hated Scream Three uh, initially. And the things I hated about it, I still do hate about it. But in revisiting mm-hmm. it over the years, it's one of those things like once you make your peace with the the bad things, you can appreciate. That there's actually a lot of good stuff in this as well, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. So that was, just, and I, throughout then I was, I was that deeply invested. Like, yeah, I was that opening day for Scream Four. Freaking watched that two seasons of that TV show and the holiday special. Didn't watch that third season because I just said like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and now I'm deeply entrenched in like Scream Five. You know, from the uh, Ready or Not guys. So let's, let's do this. Yeah. Let's get let's get this ball rolling. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Nick, do you remember seeing Scream 3 for the first time? No. I, <laughs> I v- v- Very similar <laughs> to Scream, <laughs> Scream 2. I, it was just on cable one day. And like I, I do remember this was the first one that I was aware of coming out. Mm-hmm. I remember like buying comic books or like magazines, and there were like ads that were like the full page was like that big Scream 3 poster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with whatever Millennium tagline that it had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was like in a post-scary movie world. And, right. And so I was like, really? Mm. Yeah, I had never seen them, but I was like, really? And then I caught up with it. And yeah, like, I, I really agree with what, what Niall said, is that I think this is... It actually it reminds me a lot of a movie that we're going to be talking about on the show in a few weeks, X-Men The Last Stand. Mm-hmm. For me personally, there is like a marked difference in quality like a step down mm-hmm. in terms of like yeah like the story mm-hmm. but there's like a, enough fun stuff that over the years i've gained a lot of affection for this for mm. this movie mm-hmm. is, there, is there any particularly those first like couple of installments is there any like more of a pointless spoof than a scary movie franchise because it just seems like well you know the scream is a comedy like you kind of want to say to these people like it's there's not much to spoof like it's it's already sending itself up so like a scary movie when they have like oh deputy doofy and you're like you know David Arquette's already <laughs> it's like going, a mad magazine yeah it's, it's going pretty broad already you want like scream three parker posey is like swinging like she's going big with this character it's like it's she, she's practically she's practically in josie and the pussycats boat yeah mm-hmm. yeah so just that whole pitch back then of like, oh yeah, we're gonna make fun of the, the scream movies. Like, uh, well, it wasn't just the scream movies it was making fun of, though. It was like all of the the scream copycats mm, and mm. of of that whole slasher ilk that came out post scream. I, I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend, Halloween H two O, all of that stuff. The recently disowned by Jared Leto, Urban Legend, right? <laughs> yeah, out pretending like he doesn't even know that he was at it. Like, come on, dude. Just- I'm of. The- like, I'm of the specific age group where I'm far more familiar with the Zucker Brother era of the scary movie franchise and the Wayne's Brothers mm. world because mm-hmm. like those are PG-13. Sure. Uh, so I actually I haven't seen Scary Movie in like a long time, so I don't know if it holds up at all. Mm-hmm. I'd be willing to bet I don't it, think it doesn't. It does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that's like a lot of comedy from the year 2000. Yeah. <laughs> so so I saw you know I, I myself being kind of obsessed with this franchise, I remember just thinking like, oh my God, are they ever going to make a Scream 3? Because I had read that when Kevin Williamson sold the script scary movie that would become the first Scream, it came with it 
a treat two treatments for two sequels for Scream 2 and Scream 3. And so I knew that it was always the plan that this was going to be three movies and that Scream 3 was an inevitability. And so when is it going to happen? Um, and then the ball finally started rolling and I was so excited for this to come out. Um, I saw this, I dragged a friend to go see this. I came in costume <laughs> dressed as Ghostface. Like I was so hyped for this movie. Uh, and, and saw it and sort of left kind of convincing myself that I liked it. Uh, because I was so hungry to see these characters again, but the further away from it I got, I think I, I watched it and I was like, yeah, that was, that was good. Right. And then I went home and I watched scream and scream two again. I was like, these are a lot better than that one. <laughs> what was, what happened? But I also remember watching it and seeing the credit for written by and seeing Aaron Kruger and being like, that's not Kevin Williamson. Mm. Who? Who's that? What it, what what happened? You know, because I you know that that whole thing about as we'll get into in a little while, the whole thing with Kevin Williamson not writing this, like I didn't understand I, I, I hadn't heard that yet. I don't think it was it was public knowledge, especially not for a I think I was eighth grade in two thousand. You weren't getting the trades. Yeah, I wasn't getting the trades. No. <laughs> Um, I was either eighth grade or a freshman. I can't remember. Uh, I guess this is February, so this I would have been eighth grade. Um, yeah. So I was I was uh not totally sure what was going on with that. Uh, and then I bought it, of course, when it came out on on DVD, and I would watch it with the other ones, and I was like, this is just not the same. And you know, like I recognized Jay and Silent Bob and things like that, and I thought. I remember thinking at the time, because this was right around the release of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and so it almost felt like it was like a crossover between the two, and I remember <laughs> at the time being like, well, I guess that's kind of neat, but also that's weird, right? Yeah. Why would you cross those two things so over? That like seems the, very strange. The view a scream verse I guess. Would be yeah, like- very weird. Yeah. Very, so I was like, what, are you telling me that Scream happened in the same universe where Jay and Silent Bob exists? <laughs> um, and, and so I was very confused about all of that. But yeah, the further away from it I got, the more I sort of had contempt for Scream 3. Mm. Uh, and you know, I would still watch it, but not nearly as much as I watched the first two. And it just sort of became this thorn in my fandom of this franchise of just like, God, I love those first two movies so much, but that third one, like <laughs> I, what a missed opportunity, you know? Yeah. Cause I know exactly the thing that ruins it for me, but I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's at the end of the movie. So I don't know. How, oh, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get we'll there. Get there. <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. So Scream 2 opens. Uh, December 12th, 1997. It opens at number one at the box office with $32.9 million, which is a huge opening weekend for an R-rated feature, especially considering the first Scream opened at like number four or five at the box office with only $8 million. And then that movie ended up just having legs and carrying itself through to, to the, the number it got. At the end of the box office run, it opened opposite Flubber in its first week, which only opened to like six point seven million, which is not what I remember about Flubber. I remember that being a hit, but apparently it wasn't. <laughs> oh, we were uh, children. Yeah, that's true. Uh, also, for richer or poorer, you remember that that Tim Allen vehicle? Nope. <laughs> my parents, my parents had that in 
on video in our little video library, but it was never opened. It was wrapped in plastic. <laughs> oh. And I was I guess gets to that point then yeah. like, after a couple of years, like you can never open it now. Like you can't ever break mm-hmm. the seal. <laughs> like it's it's more valuable now that it's never been touched. <laughs> And then Home Alone 3, the chicken pox Home Alone, without Kevin McAllister, that opened at number four. And then opening at number five was Steven Spielberg's Amistad oh. uh, with, with only uh, $4.5 million. Uh, so that one didn't do great. But uh, yeah, so, so Scream 2 was a huge hit. It's opening weekend, a huge, huge hit. It ended up making over the course of its run, it ended up making almost exactly the same amount of money as the first Scream. I think it was only shy a couple million dollars of hitting exactly what the first Scream made. So it was a huge, it was a huge hit because it wasn't that much more money. The first movie cost, I think, 12 or 14 million and Scream 2 cost 25. So not a huge jump in, in budget or anything like that, but, you know, maintained the same amount of, um, of money. So uh, a third film was, um, you know, obvious. Like th- that was, this is definitely going to happen. We're definitely going to make a third movie. Uh, but when was the, ki- was, the, was the question? And so everyone was a little tired. And, uh, you know, the cast and crew kind of just didn't want to deal with making another movie so fast after the second one, especially considering they made the f- second film less than 12 months uh later i think that that was like and actually going back and looking at the first two movies which i did leading up to rewatching the third i was kind of like oh yeah so scream was 96 the next one's 98 and then actually having to constantly double check like you sure it's 97 (laughs) it's like they made that the next year like jesus christ yeah yeah less than one week shy of a full year of release it, it was crazy fast turnaround. And so with this one, everyone was like, no, we want to go make some other things for a little <laughs> while. And so we had Wes Craven was like, I'm going to do not a horror movie. That's going to be my reward. I did two Scream movies. I've been dying to not do a horror movie. So I'm going to go make a not horror movie with Meryl Streep called Music of the Heart. <laughs> and so he goes and he makes... This sort of like vaguely Oscar Beatty. I don't think it did anything uh, Academy or award wise, but uh, this this vaguely Oscar Beatty movie about a music teacher starring Meryl Streep. You you know there's something so, up off of it's not off, if it didn't get nominations and it's got Meryl Streep in it. And like, like it must yeah. have really screwed up somewhere along those lines. Yeah, it just was. It was. It's fine. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Music of the Star- Heart, but it's just very fine. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen uh, but, any non non horror Craven. I, I don't think yeah, I've ever uh, that, That's me. the only one. It's oh, it's the only it's, one. It's the <laughs> only one. Yeah, he he's never made another non horror movie. It's just Music of the Heart, and I guess technically, I guess you could you could say that Red Eye is a thriller and not mm, a horror movie. Yeah, but that's been um, been generous he, to him, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it's you know it's uh it's in the ballpark. Um, so Music of the Heart is the only one that's just like. Definitely not a horror movie. Yeah. And it was very strange seeing Wes Craven's name over like a photo of uh, or like a, an image of like Meryl Streep like conducting a children's <laughs> orchestra. It is a name, you know? Even without his line of work, it's almost a creepy name just in itself. Like Wes Craven. Like it just got it yeah. has a sinister tone to it. Even though he's like it really was like the, the nicest man in the world when you saw him interviewed. But like Oh yeah, yeah I can't imagine absolutely. him having anything like unless it's got like blood dripping off the name. It's like I don't know <laughs> I can't see it in print any other way, really. Yeah. So he goes and he does music of the heart. And while he's doing that, Kevin Williamson, when he signed up, when he sold Scream, it came with a deal. You're going to write 
two movies for us in addition to Scream, us buying Scream, and we're also going to produce your directorial debut, whatever that ends up being. And so he was like, great. And, you know, he took a lower paycheck for uh, selling the script to Scream as a result because it came with this longer deal um, with, with Dimension. And that movie was Killing Mrs. Tingle, which was based on the first script that he ever sold. And so he was like, I'm going to make this. And so they go and they shoot this movie called Killing Mrs. Tingle. It had Helen Mirren in it. Uh, it, it had Katie Holmes in it. Uh, Barry something or other from Seventh Heaven. And, uh, and yeah, so they went and they shot this movie. So that's what's going on right now. And they're like, we're going to get to Scream 3 on the other side of that. And then something happened. Uh, a few things. Number one... In 1998, a year after the release of Scream 2, Gina Castillo was murdered by, by her son, uh, Mario Padilla, who was 16, and his friend, Samuel Ramirez, who was 15. And they, they murdered her because she grounded Mario uh, and told him to take out the trash. And instead, they stabbed her 45 times uh, until she was dead. And then said that the inspiration was Scream. Mm. Uh, Scream and Scream 2. That they were huge fans of Scream and Scream 2. And uh, they wanted to be the real-life ghost face. The judge, upon hearing this defense, that it was violence in the media that caused this, basically told the lawyers, the defense lawyers, that he's going to throw the case out if they try that defense and refuse to let anyone hear any defense related to Scream as a franchise because he thought the idea of blaming the movies for horrific violence uh, was bullshit. And so he just threw the whole thing out and uh, they were both, you know, sentenced um, as a result of that, I think as adults, I believe. And then in 99... Ashley Murray was st- Ashley Murray, who was a 13-year-old boy. This is in England, or, or maybe maybe it's in Ireland. Uh, Ashley Murray, who was thir- a 13-year-old boy, was stabbed multiple times, wrapped in plastic, and left for dead uh, by Daniel Gill, who was 14, and Robert Fuller, who was 15, and they too both blamed Scream, mm. uh, saying that Scream uh, they wanted to be like Billy and Stu, and uh, and decided that they were going to. Uh, kill this kid who they found extremely annoying. And uh, luckily, Ashley Murray survived somehow, wrapped in plastic. The, the plastic was wrapped tight enough that it kind of cinched his wounds, and he survived in an alley for two days Ooh. before he was found and then saved. And uh, both, of those, both of those kids were also uh, sentenced um, to, I believe, life in prison. And so those two things happened, and this started making people nervous. Everyone at Dimension was really nervous about doing another Scream because of all of this. But, you know, at the end of the day, Scream and Scream 2 made a lot of money, and the judges in both cases wouldn't let them blame Scream. And so they were kind of leaning toward just going ahead and, and making Kevin Williams in Scream 3. And then, in early 1999, two kids shot up their school, and killed 13 people and injured 24 others. And of course, that's the Columbine shooting. Mm. So the Columbine shooting changed everything. Suddenly, it was 
in vogue to blame the movies, movies and pop culture for everything. You saw Marilyn Manson being blamed. You saw The Matrix being blamed. You saw... Um, you know, uh, horror movies being blamed. It was this whole culture of this sort of 90s goth aesthetic that, you know, in pop culture and the kinds of things that they enjoy, those those kinds of kids enjoy, were ca- caused the Columbine shooting, is what was sort of the general consensus in the media in America. Um, I don't know how it was in, in other countries, Niall, but in America, everyone blamed everything on Marilyn Manson. Oh, the, and- there was definitely, like, the, the, the 90s was marked with that, uh, I think a bit, like, over here a bit earlier, because there was a very high-profile murder apparently inspired by child's play three and so oh. yeah that and then there was a whole big and then obviously natural born killers and stuff coming afterwards there was murders linked right. to that so yeah like, right. not specifically to do with scream over here but just blaming movies in general for yes you know, it, it, exacerbating violent tendencies and things like that was yes. yeah that was very in vogue you know yeah yeah um it was kind of like a second satanic panic yeah um is 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 what was going on in this in this era and it was freaking everybody out all of the executives they were all sort of freaking out and you saw a a a very quick decline in the level of violence depicted in film the MPAA became much more stringent than they ever had been before in terms of uh, allowing violence through R rated films versus just slapping them with an NC17 until they edited it all out so that's all going on. And at this point, Dimension is looking at that and looking at Scream, and they're starting to get worried. And specifically, they're looking at the script that Kevin Williamson has turned in for Scream 3. Now, the script for Scream 3 was written by Kevin Williamson and was the same plot line that he had presented in that original treatment. Now, granted, it was altered slightly because of the way that Scream 2 had to be altered due to the leaks of the original screenplay. You know, the original plan for the trilogy was that the first movie had two killers, the the second movie had four killers, in that it was uh, Hallie and Derek were the original murderers who were then, who were being manipulated by uh, Mrs. Loomis, who kills them, and then she is killed by Cotton, who decides that he wants to be the sole survivor, and then attempts to murder Sydney. And the movie ends with the two of them sort of um, lying, dying on the stage. Mm. And you don't know who, survi- who, if either of them, is going to survive. That's not the Scream 2 we got, obviously. The, the Scream 2 we got were just Mickey and Mrs. Loomis. And so you had the two, the two killers. But there was an escalation because yeah. <laughs> Kevin Williamson's third film was going to open with, with Sydney, uh, wherever it is that she's living at this po- point, post-college, with a roommate. And they get terrorized by a new ghost face. This was going to be the opening scene. Her roommate is killed. Sydney fights back. She eventually kills the ghost face in the opening, unmasks them, and basically is like, I have no idea who this is. <laughs> and the mystery of the film is, who was this? And why did they do this? And as you go along, Ghostface keeps showing up, and people keep dying, and there are many ghost faces and many, pe- many victims, and then it all leads back to... Uh, Stu Mocker's house in Woodsboro. All of this being done 
because there's rumors of a stab three happening, but they don't have anything to base it on because no, the, no other murders happened. And what we find out is that the murders have been per- perpetrated by a group of stab fanatics who want a new stab film and so are perpetuating all of these murders in order to create a story for Stab 3 to be based on. And all of this, the big reveal, was that no one died except for the ghost face in the opening. They're all alive, and they were all faking it to end this with killing Sidney Prescott in Stu's house, who, Stu, is the ultimate killer of this. Having survived the original Scream, he is, per- he is, he is orchestrating this whole thing from prison. And if this sounds familiar, it's because when this version of Scream 3 didn't go, he, Kevin Williamson ended up taking the idea and turning it into his television series, The Following, uh, which is about a serial killer who uh, leads a cult from prison who uh, continues his murders once he's in prison, uh, starring Kevin Bacon. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I cannot imagine Stu as any kind of mastermind of anything, <laughs> though. Like him as a as a charismatic uh, leader of serial killers is like um I, I don't know. It always seemed to me like Billy was the guy who was leading the charge in that relationship. But uh, oh yeah, for sure. I think that what what the suggestion though was going to be that like it was going to be sort of a commentary on how people how how serial killers have fans. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, you know, regardless of how like stupid they are or you know i mean how bad the music is yeah (laughs) yeah. but yeah you know like they have groupies um and that was going to be the concept of this is like hey remember that idiot from the first movie (laughs) that idiot that we all loved granted because you know he's he we get a great performance out of him but he's a moron who got duped by billy that guy has a cult following him you know (laughs) and doing his bidding and because they think that he's this brilliant mastermind but in really reality he's Stu mocker Matthew Lillard signed on to play return as Stu Mocker in this movie. He was paid to be in Scream 3. Oh. Uh, and then the Columbine shooting happened. Scream 3 was going to shoot six weeks, start shooting six weeks after Columbine. But when Columbine happens, the Dimension goes to Kevin and is like, hey, we need you to write a brand new script because we can't have all of these kids doing violence post- Scream, like, we, this needs to be an adult-driven film. We need to take out all, like, most of the blood and gore, and we need to lean more heavily on comedy. Because this script, as it stands, is good, but it's, it's going to crash and burn at the box office because nobody wants this right now. And so Kevin Williamson said, no, I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to rewrite it. I'm in the middle of my own problems because killing Mrs. Tingle, which is about three students who kill their teacher and then cover up the murder had to go through extensive reshoots by the same company, by Dimension, by Bob Weinstein, because of Columbine. So he tells them, like, we have to scrap this entire movie and start over from scratch. You have to rewrite it, change it to teaching Mrs. Tingle, make it a PG-13 film, and make it about teaching this woman a lesson, not killing her. And so he had to rewrite everything. And I just rewatched this movie this week. And um, it's not great. It's really not great. It feels rushed. It feels 
very forced in certain areas. Um, and it feels very much like the movie it wasn't it wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be the nineties answer to Heathers. And instead it's uh it's just this generic sort of forgotten uh teen dark comedy. Yeah. You know, yeah. PG thirteen weak ass dark comedy. Yeah, I, I do remember seeing it like one time when I was a kid. And it left no impact yeah. on me beyond like, oh, I remember uh, Helen Marin been like tied to a bed for like right. the majority of the film. <laughs> like that, that was right. all I took away from it. Right. So he was like, I've got my own problems and you gave them to me. I have to solve this. I'm directing a movie for you. I'm directing these reshoots. I can't be involved in screen three. I gave you a script. I did my part. You're going to have to find somebody else. And so enter Aaron Kruger who had recently become sort of a, a Hollywood big-time screenwriter due to Arlington Road, which was a movie that, I guess, the script, the script for Arlington Road made its way around Hollywood and eventually birthed a film, and he became a guy that a lot of people came to to solve the problems because he was insanely fast. Um, he was one of the fastest writers in Hollywood, <laughs> and he was not only fast— but he could turn out a screenplay that was producible, like first draft. And so he got a lot of work as a result of this. And one of his first jobs was writing Scream 3. And um, he was asked by Bob to write Scream 3. And he was like, okay, uh, when do you need it? He's like, we shoot in six weeks. He's like, okay, so where's the, where's the script? He's like, you can't have the script? could just think that there is no script write a page one just write a scream three and so aaron Kruger wrote scream three in four weeks the first draft of scream three in four weeks he was told to have it based in hollywood have it based on sets and backlots and studio space that way they don't have to do any location scouting they can all just they can just shoot it where they shoot everything and and so that's why the movie takes place in Hollywood. That's why it's it's all sets built on sets. Um and you know the the whole story of the movie being based around the making of Stab 3 is all a result of the fact that they uh, didn't want to have to location scout or or move the production anywhere else. They just they needed to start shooting in 6 weeks whatever it was and the easiest way to do that was going to be to shoot it all here in LA. So that's what they did. So he turns that in. And then four weeks later, he was like, all right, I got to go. So I've got, I've got other jobs. And so I have to leave. <laughs> and the script wasn't quite there yet. So then they bring in, um, there goes see. the fastest rider in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they bring in Leda Caligridis, uh, Leda, Leda Caligridis, um, who had never written anything really before this. Uh, she was, was just like, she oh, had done Wes some... Craven just went to like his mil- like the the milkman. <laughs> hey, you, do you want to polish Scream Three? <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So he they bring her in, and she's the one who uh, decides to sort of make this a story about Sid's mother and about Sid's mother being uh, abused by the Hollywood system, being raped, the brother twist. All of that came from Lita, who wanted to make this. She was she her her thought was like, well, if we're gonna make this 
a Scream movie, it needs to be commenting on something. And right now, this Aaron Kruger script isn't commenting on anything. So let's comment on this. If we can't leave Hollywood, we can at least comment on the abusive nature of Hollywood producers and things like that. Little did she know that she was literally working for one of the most oh, notorious yeah, yeah. abusive producers of all time. It was weird. Um, like, now- yeah, re-watching this and just like everything John Milton's coming out with, and you're like, oh, man, this is weird coming out of Dimension <laughs> of all places. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so she had, I, I don't know that she knew or if she was subtly uh, calling attention to that. Um, Lita would uh, eventually move on to write movies like Terminator Genesis, Alexander, Alita Battle Angel, and Shutter Island. So she, you know, became a, a pretty, you know, very, uh, well, I wouldn't even say pretty, a very successful screenwriter yeah. in her own right. But at this time, she had not really done anything. She was just being brought in to solve some problems. I assume she probably had like a spec script that she had written that got her some attention. And then she started getting like script doctor jobs as a result of that, this being one of the first ones. But she is uncredited in the final movie because at the end of the day, she added layers to Aaron Kruger's script, but didn't make any substantial changes because she couldn't, because the movie needed to be set the way that it was set. She couldn't change locations. All of those needed to be set in stone. And so as a result, when you don't make any substantial changes to a screenplay, you tend to not get any credit for writing it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so that happens. The next thing that happens is that Dimension says, uh, hey, Wes, we're going to need this to be PG-13. So no blood. <laughs> Um, a very, very, very little violence. Uh, we want it to be funny. We want it to be silly. We want it to be campy because no one is going to be scared of that. And no one's is going to be mad at us for putting a movie out like that. And Wes Craven basically said, no, I'm drawing the line at that. I'll make it funnier, but I'm not cutting the gore out. I'm not cutting the, the violence out because at that point, we're not making a scream movie. If you want me to make another movie, I'd be happy to make that other movie for you. But if this is going to be Scream 3, it needs to be a Scream movie. So that means it's going to be rated R. That means that people are going to get stabbed and, and that they are, there's going to be blood and it's going to be rated R. But that's it. You don't, you don't have any say in that. Um, and, and if you want to make a Scream 3 without any of that, a PG-13 Scream 3, you can make it without me. And Dimension was like, okay... We can make we can probably get by making a screen movie without Kevin Williamson, but we can't get by making a screen movie without Kevin Williamson or Wes Craven. So fine. Man. We'll make it R-rated, but you need to agree to make it a little sillier, a little campier, a little more fun than the other ones. And so he did. And that's why we get this sort of Scooby-Doo meets Clue vibe that the movie has. <laughs> Wes Craven looks around at his desk and sees like a headshot of Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'll give you silly. I'll give you silly. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's how we end up with the movie that we ended up with. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, another, another thing that happens with this is that Nev Campbell was shooting Drowning Mona and Party of Five at the same time as shooting this. So they only had her for 20 days. Oh, it was Party of Five on. A, a while Jeez. like yeah a while um i think six or seven seasons maybe so um so she's shooting both of those things at the same time that she's shooting this they only have her for 20 days which is why she's barely in the movie yeah it really, and the movie really isn't a it's not even a sydney prescott movie yeah, at this point they like shoehorn it in at the end to like make it about sydney but it feels so weird 
because the rest of the movie hadn't been about it. You almost feel like in Scream 4, she'd be like, oh, that time you know, in Woodsboro and the time in university. And then like, that time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, there was a time in Hollywood. I forgot about that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was there yeah. for like, like a hot minute. It's like I flew in for one afternoon and I was back out again. <laughs> right. So, uh, okay. That's, uh, I think that's all, that's all I got. But I think it does roll us into... Absolutely. I mean that 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 that's all great information going into mm. the movie that we're about to talk about. It certainly explains a lot. That's just, yes. Uh, it, again, too, there's elements in there too where like you see like from you know from disaster could be potentially more something good. Like I, the, the fact that you know so much of it is filmed on studio backlots and it's like recreating sets and stuff. I actually quite like. I think that's a good like that's a good direction the film goes for me. And then but then like, elements as well like oh yeah commenting on you know abuse in Hollywood and stuff. Great. But then at the same time, there's a flip side to that, which is the yeah. other elements that are added in, which is just like, this is ridiculous and an absolute yes. travesty. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, it's hard the uh, reputation of this film and the, no, not the franchise, Scream. Scream 1 stands pretty tall. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this this one, it's it's a, I will say, rewatching it for this, I enjoyed it this time more than I've ever enjoyed it. So I guess yeah. it's getting better as it as it goes on. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the further you get away from some bad sequels, I think the more that you're just like, well, it is what it is, mm. you know? It's like how people look at Return of the Jedi and they're just like, well, that's great. Return of the Jedi is great. And it's like, I mean, I, I it's fine. Um, <laughs> it has its problems. But I think we all just accept Return of the Jedi as Star Wars. Yeah. And we're just like, yeah, it's... That's it's Return of the Jedi. That's what it is, mm. and you just sort of accept it now, um, and and you don't realize how much of a downgrade in quality it is versus the the previous two films. And I think I think we're starting to get there with Scream Three, where you are all just sort of accepting it for what it is, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm still I'm, I'm within next fifteen years. I'm 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 awaiting the Rise of Skywalker is good actually. Uh, you know, <laughs> those waves of discourse to come about, but um, mm-hmm. but we're still a ways out. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, yeah the, the I don't know if you guys want to you know hop on in. Like, would we just do like first scene and stuff? Or yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, yeah. we we open on the Hollywood sign mm-hmm. just to let everyone know where we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, uh, cotton, actually, a thing though in that because this is like it's almost like a a weird continuation for Wes Craven in that. He also made Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which in itself is like mm-hmm. the almost like the ultimate and meta horror kind of like mm-hmm. you know. So uh, uh, I wonder how much of a, a say did, did he have in this whole like oh we're setting it in Hollywood and like it's going to be the sort of you know it, it's going to be even more meta than you know than, than, than previous iterations or if that's the thing he was interested in or was more like no this has just been foisted upon me by studio demands. I, I, I- I think it's just, I just, I think it's just been foisted upon him. I mean, it's, it's, I, they had, I mean, the whole movie was written in six weeks, you know? <laughs> um, that's not a lot of time to like have a direction in any way. Um, I think he was really just like, I just got to get this movie done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Cotton Weary is stuck in traffic. He is mm-hmm. now a, a big-time talk show host, still trying to get the acting career going. 100% Cotton. Yeah. 100% Cotton is the name of the show, as we so learn yeah. later on. Love that direction for him as well. Just love the yeah, opportunist mm-hmm. asshole Cotton, Cotton Weary. <laughs> it's not like, I couldn't say that as well. Like, we all go through our own you know ways of uh, dealing with trauma, and he did get, you know have to serve a year in prison and stuff, so... Like, maybe this is just his way of dealing with things, but, like, it is just so typical of that character. <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course he'd be the one to claw his way to the top through, uh, you know, the bloods and guts of, of others. <laughs> I just love that he's willing to be in Stab 3 as himself. Like, that is... <laughs> Like, you are a monster. <laughs> like, he's such an <laughs> asshole for agreeing to do something that monstrous. Um, but uh, I think it's like, yeah, I'll be in your fake sequel to the real-life horror that I was involved <laughs> with. I also noticed, too, that he seems to be wearing a um, a stew tribute uh, sweater in this opening scene. <laughs> At the- oh, yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, gave me... Like, I always hated those sweaters in the 90s. Like, I never understood the popularity of them. And it's not, oh, no, Cotton's got one, too. Mm-hmm. Is it 100% Cotton in itself? We don't know. I can only imagine. Hopefully the killer just checked the label on the way out. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. just out of curiosity. <laughs> Cotton gets a phone call from his girlfriend, Christine, mm-hmm. or so he thinks. Mm-hmm. And then uh, quickly becomes clear that this is Roger L. Jackson. We are introduced. To, I don't know how voice boxes work, but there is a lot of voice box shenanigans in this movie. Mm. So strap in. Yep, that, that, that's one. That, that's an element, though. I I think initially I was like, oh come on, that's not realistic at all. But like as it goes on, it's like, well, you know, horror sequels do have to up the ante every time. And this the the idea of like, oh yeah, the ghost face can now change his voice to to the you know, T one thousand you basically like the, the you know put all the, <laughs> the voices of to lure people into you know it makes no sense whatsoever beyond no. the fact like who turns out to be the killer is like oh well, i guess he works in hollywood maybe he knew how to do behind the scenes trickery or whatever to make pull that off 21 years later that technology still doesn't exist <laughs> like we have we have like the the you know the fake stuff like the what is that called the um the technology the fake face technology deep fake. Fake. yeah deep fakes yeah we have deep fakes but we don't have this we don't have like a box that you can talk into and then live someone else's voice comes out of it <laughs> like 21 years later this still doesn't exist this movie's uh, science fiction yeah i think that's even because even then like terminator 2 i think they do establish like oh yeah the, the the machine has to hear you speak first before it can replicate mm-hmm. you this thing's like oh no it just has everyone's voices on the side anyway <laughs> like it's like later on yeah. like oh apparently apparently there was a scene where ghostface is loading the the sounds onto from his computer onto this and they shot it and they were just like this is too silly we can't put this into the movie because <laughs> it was just ghostface sitting at a computer like with with the voice changer plugged into a laptop like loading voices onto it this was well too um, but it was like like the having to use like pre-edited sound bites as well. It's like, hello, Cotton. <laughs> it is yeah. like, are you that guy <laughs> <Right>. from TV? <laughs> yeah, like I like though it's kind of the one bit of fantasy that the, the series has. It's never really explained like mm-hmm. how the voice altercation works. Mm-hmm. Uh so uh Cotton is on his way home. His girlfriend Christine, played by Kelly Rutherford, aka Lily Vanderwoosen mm-hmm. uh Vanderwoodson. Serena's mom from Gossip Girl from Melrose Place at this point, but yes, absolutely. But her iconic role is is obviously Gossip Girl. <laughs> Never seen a second of Melrose Place. I've seen many seconds of Melrose Place because my 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 parents watched it in the nineties. Okay. I've, yeah. I've neither seen Melrose Place or Gossip Girl, so now I feel like I'm really on the outs here. 
Oh boy, Niall. We get some bitchin' new metal uh, playing in Cotton's apartment. That's a really good sign of things to come soundtrack wise. Yeah. Well, the, this well, is this is the Creed song, right? What if? I think you must feel right at home. Scott's like, oh, there it is. The smooth, the dulcet tones of Chad Kroger once again gracing your eardrums. Uh, oh no, that's not Chad Kroger. Oh God, Creed, oh, Creed is uh, no, my mistake. Yeah, my mistake. Oh. Creed Scott Stapp, I think, is his name. Yeah, Scott Stapp. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the one. Have either of you seen the music video for What If, where the band is getting killed and terrorized by Ghostface on the <laughs> no, on the, I'm, I'm on the set of their music this. video? Yeah, it's getting terrorized by Ghostface on the set of their own music video. Oh <laughs> man, it's like the um, like dr- the Dream Warriors Dawkins video with like, them getting terror. Like Freddy Krueger ends up waking up from his own dream, terrorized by Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Dawkins! <laughs> what a nightmare! Yeah, I really like the shot of following uh, uh, Christine's like leg, like feet as she's like walking out of the shower, and the camera's like following her. It just is—I don't know—kind of remind me of like what lies beneath. I just like yeah. the, the quiet. I I like that too. I don't love that she's getting out of the shower because at this point, Scream has become a parody of itself—a mm. parody of its own parody of itself. Yeah. Sure, it's become um, a stab movie. Yeah, right. Which I guess you could make the argument that like that's the whole point of this movie is that. The killer is a director, yeah. and he's the director of Stab 3. It's from the Jurassic World School of Satire. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, you could make the argument. I don't, I, I don't love it, but uh, it's. I guess you could make the argument. Christina's terrorized, locked herself, locks herself in the bathroom, and then hears the voice, but it sounds like Cotton. Right. And so, it's like Cotton trying to, like, coax. So, we've already, you know, we've heard two voices. I don't, uh, I don't hate this opening it, it had a fair amount of dread and i enjoy it i think uh believe andrew woodson i mean kelly rutherford i liked her paranoia mm-hmm. it was like her like oh what the hell's going on i can't trust anybody and when cotton comes back mm. and like with like the poker yeah mm-hmm. i think it, it, it might have been um a little more clever if it had like maybe the voice recording of of like her thinking it was cotton him saying phrases that we've heard him say on the phone to ghostface and then maybe then the audience is like, oh, no, that's the recording of him. Because it, and then it would be a bit more like, you could do that, theoretically. Maybe he was tricked into saying certain phrases. So Ghostface could then you know, lure his girlfriend out of the bathroom. But uh, I guess maybe uh, you know, if you've got six weeks to write this thing. <laughs> like, wow. Like in Sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> like that scene in Sneakers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, Christine and Cotton are killed. So we have... Our first and I believe only OG cast member mm-hmm. that that dies in this movie. Yeah, it's actually the, the great tradition though of the, of the like a Friday the Thirteenth Part Two where you have like oh, opening scene is like oh here's a survivor from the last movie dead. And I think it's just designed oh, yeah. to like up the stakes straight away of like oh no there's someone you thought was theoretically infallible and I was like no 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 straight off the straight off the bat. In many ways to me it feels like it's there's so many elements of Scream Three feel like they should have been Scream Two. Like to me, in mm. many ways, Scream Two feels like, oh yeah, it's it's good, but it doesn't. It, it, yeah, I don't know. It just feels like the the, the it, an escalation. Yeah, I feel like it, it should have gotten to like elements like yeah, maybe then you have Randy die in the opening screen scene of Scream Two, because then that would be like, well, how do you up, you know, Drew Barrymore? You thinking her, she's the star of the movie, dies in the opening scene. Second movie, it's like, oh, Jada Pinkett Smith uh, or Jada Pinkett at that point, and it's just kind of like, yeah, it's a bit of a retread. Of the same kind of thing. Or, or a cold open where Sid kills Ghostface in the cold open. Yeah. That's why I like that cold open a lot. Yeah. I think yeah. that cold open rules. Um, and would be like a really 
uh, I think it would have been a really interesting way to start the final chapter of a trilogy, which is just like, oh, we're doing the third act of a Scream movie you didn't see in the opening of Scream 3. Yeah. Um, and that kind of rules. I, 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 I really No, there's do. a lot of that that you were talking about that sounded like it would have ruled. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> I think it kind of would have. Um, can we talk about what else rules, gentlemen? Uh, that bitchin' 2000 Scream 3 logo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. A chunky CG animation. I gotta ask, too, though. Like, the, all the, the Scream 3 marketing. There are no good mm. posters for Scream 3. Like, there's just none <laughs> no. of it. Like, all terrible. Did they only have six weeks to market it as well? Like, what? <laughs> I, what I, you could, I can only imagine. Um, so, a couple of things about the opening uh, sequence. Uh, number one, they shot three different versions. Of, no, four different versions of this. Or maybe they only shot three, but there was another one that they didn't shoot. So, originally, in the first draft of this... This was not Cotton in the opening. It was an actress who was just cast, was coming back from learning that she had just been cast in Stab 3. And uh, I think this ends up becoming the Jenny McCartney character later. Um, McCarthy? McCartney? I don't remember. But she is in the car, and she's talking about, like, you know, oh, I got cast in this thing. And then she figures out that she's talking to Ghostface in the car. She thinks it's a trick for a while, realizes the real Ghostface. Ghostface is hiding in her trunk, comes out, kills her in the middle of traffic. Like, that's... So So she is in L.A. traffic and is murdered in her car by Ghostface, who then gets out of the car and just walks away, leaving her, like, dead body in the, in the car. And so that was the original, original opening, because they were trying to up the ante from Drew Barrymore to... Being killed like basically in front of her parents to Jada Pinkett Smith being killed in front of a uh, an audience, an auditorium, a movie theater to someone being killed in the middle of rush hour traffic in L.A. I've never thought about that. I've never thought that about Scream 2. The escalation of, oh, this time she's killed in front of more people. Well, it was it, I don't think it was like. I don't think it was like on purpose that that's what the, but they were oh, like, okay. I think they were thinking about it in terms of like, well, what's the third step of this? Well, this one was like this. This one was like this. So I guess the third one would be like this. She was killed on the 405. Yeah, she was killed on the 405. <laughs> um, so, so that was the that, that one. I don't know if that was ever shot, but they did shoot two other um, Cotton versions. Uh, one, which is that Cotton gets home, races home, and then finds out that she's not there at all. Um, his girlfriend is not there and gets a phone call from her. And she's like, I'm at Starbucks. Like, where are you? And he was like, I thought I was just talking to you. And then is like there alone and is freaking out. And then she was like, uh, she like basically talks him into opening a closet and she, he opens the closet and her body falls out. And he realizes that ghost, he's been talking to Ghostface the whole time. And then Ghostface comes out and kills Cotton. Um, and so it was more of a like solo mission opening so we never meet his girlfriend she's dead the whole time mm. um and this was not going to be uh rutherford in this in this version they cast rutherford when they went back for reshoots to reshoot this opening a couple of oh so times. this was like a cameo at the time yeah <laughs> okay yeah, yeah, yeah oh it's it's the lady from melrose place right 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 oh, okay. so so in this original version where it's like oops all cotton she was not it was 100 percent cotton if you will okay um she was not uh rutherford was not playing his girlfriend and then once she, it became like a more legitimate role 
um, that she actually got to talk and appear on camera as more than a dead body. That's when they went back and cast like a quote unquote real actress. And then we got Rutherford. Um, and then the, the second version was just a slightly different version where Cotton tries to escape through the, through the, um, uh, the uh, skylight. So he like breaks the window and tries to get in there and then Ghostface stabs him through the leg and drags him back down. Um, and they cut that because they thought it was too violent. So all of this is leading me. And now I'm thinking about scream four mm-hmm. and it's like, I don't think anyone knows what a scream cold open is supposed to be, but they, they just know there's always supposed to be a scream cold open. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm actually really excited about the new scream because I'm like, how, what are they going to do? Yeah. What, how are they going to reinvent the cold open? What, what are they going to take away from this weird tradition? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Cause some, pe- some people seem to think it's about the cameos. Some people seem to think it's about the escalation. Yeah. I think I, I actually thought that was one of my favorite elements of Scream 4 was the the openings upon openings upon openings. <laughs> like, I thought actually... It's... Like, I, I, I agree with you, but it's ironic that it's kind of the most Scream 3 thing the movie does. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's true. Well, so, yeah. after the crazy 2000s logo, uh, we learned something very important, listeners. Sydney has a dog. <laughs> yep. And like, Sydney hopefully a big old golden retriever. Hopefully she gets someone good to take care of this dog throughout the rest of the movie as well, because it just seems like, yeah, you know, I'm hoping- she seems to be way out in the middle of nowhere, but presumably she has at least one neighbor who can look after her, this thing. That would be great if they cut back to, like, she hired, like, a kid to babysit the dog. <laughs> She's like, Miss Prescott! You know, I don't know. It's just the end of, like, uh, one, one thing of the do- many en- endings was just like, oh, the dog was ghost-faced the whole time! <laughs> it had a modifier that could change barks into human voices! <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, one thing I do want to mention is that uh, when the initial trailer for Scream Three came out, uh, the internet this was the first one of the first examples of the internet totally breaking down a trailer to the extent that they figured out the whole plot of the movie, <laughs> and so everyone like the the whole plot of the movie was just like sort of guessed uh, online uh, because like Cotton is in it, but he's only in a scene where he's talking on the phone and then he's not on the rest of the trailer. And so they were like, Oh, I bet he's, I bet he's the opening, the cold open death. Mm. And like everything was sort of guessed. Um, and this, this had been a whole thing. This had been a struggle for them for a long time when they cast the roles originally, when you, when they heard Carrie Fisher was in it, they were like, Oh, they're making stab two. And Carrie Fisher is playing Mrs. Loomis in Stab 2. And and Patrick Warburton, well, he's going to be playing Cotton in Stab 2. And like, so That's people so were like, they were trying to figure it out. And, uh, <laughs> and it was just, it's a, it was a really interesting history sort of going back to like these old websites back in the 90s. An and ancient reading, tradition was being born before our eyes. Yeah. Reading these message boards of everyone trying to figure out what the movie was and about. Like, and like so many things too. Like now just those two suggestions are like, ah, oh, I kind of wish I saw that movie. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd <laughs> right? see that. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> it's like it, in Star Wars and everyone was like, oh, Domo Gleason kind of looks like Ben. It kind of looks like Alec Guinness. Maybe he's like Ben Kenobi's grandson or something. <laughs> right. And they'd yeah. Photoshop Jedi Rose on him and a poster <laughs> oh man i remember that so uh sydney in this when we see her opening she she's living out in isolation like we've talked about she has this like compound she has this big security gate in the wake of scream 2 where she was trying to cling on to a normal life by like having a boyfriend and having a group of friends 
In this opening scene, we see that she's chosen isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's chosen to burrow down and protect herself. Uh, did you catch the Cassandra poster on her door? Oh, no. Yeah. I, I've never noticed that. There, there's a poster when she's like changing and going in and locking the door. Very important. Mm-hmm. There's like a, 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 a Windsor College poster for Cassandra. That <laughs> so she she's still starred in it. Yeah. yeah like in the she, she did it. That was, like, that was a damn yeah. good production. Let me tell you. Man. David Warner like stands up and slow every comes. Every night just sold out completely. <laughs> sold out. If that would be a great publicity, it would be like, that, that lady yeah. who just had like the freaking serial kill after, yeah. she's still out of that. It's like when Emma Watson was a brown. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Crazy. Um, That's pretty great. That'd be, thinking, that'd be a, I, a, I really a side like screen project where David Warner is now staging serial killings every year when he's putting on a play. I've gone mad! <laughs> like, it, it does great I, for ticket sales, though. I really like Sydney being a uh, a, a, a grief counselor, there, a grief counselor. Um, it's crisis counseling, actually. Crisis counseling. She's taking the phone call back. Oh, like, that's great. That's what this is. It's like it's like I. This is a thing that scares me. The phone scares me because of what it represents in my life, and so I'm taking it back and I'm using it for good. Yeah. She's a bodiless voice on the other end of the phone. That's caring for you and helping you through something mm-hmm. right which is really cool way to sort of yin and yang her and uh roland at the end of this mm. yeah the way that sydney is in this trilogy it invokes a lot of like she's more of like a superhero or mm-hmm. like an action hero than like a final girl in a horror she kind of she really blurs that line in a way that we would see later on with stuff like ready or not ironically where it, or like Luke Skywalker, she's she's exiled herself. She's she separated herself from the narrative, but you still see that she's she's learned from her adventures, mm. and she's choosing to help in her own anonymous way. Yeah, and I thought that was a really cool scene. Yeah, like all, all the the Sydney stuff, it makes total sense to me. Like it is like it, it, again, it almost feels like um, this could have been the natural progression from Scream One. That we could have had her go into complete like they just had like a little way back. Like no, she tried to get on with her life, but no. The, the drama was too much and stuff. Um, Scream 2 is like the temple burning down for Luke. It's when she was like, oh, I can't have a normal life. Yeah. 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 But like, yeah. Uh, and I, I, like, one of those things that you put a pin in it for later, but like, there's a thing at the end when she holds Roman's hand. And I was like, initially, I was like, why is she, what the, what's happening here? I guess well, it was some familial connection or whatever. But it's also, it's like, I guess, yeah, she is a trauma counselor. She is speaking to someone who has been traumatized. Maybe it's just, Absolutely. it's, it's just true. entertaining to be like, yeah, I just need to, to comfort this guy in his last moments and stuff. So, yeah. But, yeah. These, these are the kinds of things in this movie that I'm like, there's good stuff in here. And if they had had more time to like, really like massage it and and mm-hmm. and dig into this stuff these themes that they're dealing with um these these choices i think you could we could have had something really special mm. it's just like the timeline on this was just so insane that they like i i'm surprised the movie holds together as well as it does to be honest <laughs> sure, especially the more that you, we, we've told me now yeah right uh, yeah uh, Sydney's not the only one who's moved on cut to the future journalists of america meeting where gail weathers host of what total entertainment is giving some kind of like graduation speech or like seminar some kind of motivational speech where she's inspiring the future Mm -hmm. journalists of america to chase the stories chase the facts and chase the fame Mm -hmm. and and some one one guy's like are you gonna stab somebody he's just a real real piece of shit comment doesn't (laughs) even really make sense this is uh this is the lost arquette 
this this guy is it uh, for real yeah yeah he's uh he's a uh, he's an arquette sibling but uh he didn't his his kind of career didn't really go anywhere but yeah um he is an arquette sibling yeah. that uh that uh, david got him a role in this movie okay yeah i also shouldn't well i guess you know fight david arquette's there as well but then of course patricia arquette did star in the third iteration of one of wes craven's prior horror franchises as well so it's like Oh yeah, that's true. Oh my gosh, yeah, wow. yeah. He's like, I, can, I made a star of Patricia. I can make a star of you too, kid. Oh wait, no, forget oh. it. No, sorry, it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> Scott, uh, uh, something that I remember you brought up a couple times in Scream Two is how you really liked how Gail ends her arc in that movie. It's a shame that it gets washed away in Scream Three. Yes. So we see here in Scream Three, Gail is very much like back to her old tricks. Yep. She. It, it, I, mean, I, I don't Just know why with worse bangs. Yeah, oh, God. the worst bangs I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. Finally, um, it was a, just David Arquette himself has now admitted uh, blame for those bangs. Apparently, it was all, all his Oof. idea. <laughs> Yikes! So notorious are these. I think uh, Courtney Cox herself is like uh, made fun of them on Instagram and stuff. And so it's like, yeah, yeah they're, they're, they are severe. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it is a look. That's definitely a word for them. We'll yeah. have to rank the the Gale hairstyles at the end. At Ooh, four. yeah, that's good. I think this is almost like her going back to um, as, as you see, like later on too, when she puts on that hideous canary suit, uh, the mm-hmm. canary yellow suit. It's like uh, Scream yeah, One, the the, the, ke- the ketchup and mustard outfit, yeah, as I yeah. like to call it. Yeah, that's just because they had Scream One. It's like, oh yeah, this woman's taste and fashion is horrible it's a horrible lime green outfit and stuff but then scream 2 it's kind of like i think they make there's one crack about her having the streaks but like oh it looks fine it seems it's like oh yeah mm-hmm. gail mothers has got a bit of style about her now and then scream 3 is like no 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 it's a terrible horrible haircut hideous yellow <laughs> suit it's like it seems to be like no we we forgot that it was like a i, th- I don't even think it was, a, it was supposed to be deliberately that she had horrible fashion sets in 96 it's just that it was 1996 but now it's right. almost as if they're trying to make it a character character trait of like oh yeah gail weathers has really bad tastes in clothing and hair right after the speech gail uh is met by mark kincaid yeah. played by patrick dempsey who was also in the third transformers movie written by aaron kruger yeah. patrick dempsey yes is uh, a really interesting takes a really interesting role in this movie because he was cast and on the same day that he showed up on set and filmed every scene in that police precinct <laughs> um, so he created this character in about an hour. Oh. <laughs> and I'll be honest, the performance that he gives, having only been with this character for an hour, is shockingly good. Yeah. Because he really rides a balance between being charming and then also being very suspicious. You know, he's a and, great red herring for oh, sure. Oh man, he's a great one of the best red herrings I think in the series. To be totally honest, I think he's really really good in this especially considering the fact that he showed up an hour before he got the role an hour before he showed up to set was uh, there a reason for that that they have someone else cast or is it just like no time we have no time to do anything uh no i think i think my understanding is that they decided to to uh split the they weren't sure if nev campbell was going to be in it and then they had decided to like split the cop characters they were just going to be one character and now they're partners and they wanted one of them to be a love interest but they'd already cast the other guy and they're like well he's not going to be a love interest for nev campbell so we're gonna find somebody else and, and create a new character real quick and then they cast patrick dempsey because um, you know, hunk. Yeah, yes, sure. Yeah, Mc, McDreamy, He's a good-looking man. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing I never, I never watched. Was it Grey's Anatomy? He went on to be in, or 
Well, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I, I remember the which, era which, of McDreamy. Was he McDreamy? Yeah, that's him. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's the McDreamy. Guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, also mentioned as well, though, that um, beyond you know a, a second Arquette bit in the movie, been a kind of Dream Warriors illusion. The name Kincaid, of course, uh, uh, Roland Kincaid is a a name of a, like one of the main characters in Nightmare on Elm Street Three. So I'm assuming that's another little nod to Wes Craven's past there. Uh, yeah, I just say that because I was like, Elm Street Three is like one of my all-time favorite movies. So I'm just like, oh, it's, oh, it's, it's great. It's gotta be. It's gotta be a deliberate reference. Oh yeah, and he's one Elm of the Street best characters in that movie as well. So. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kincaid is the one who uh, informs Gale of what happened with Cotton and Christine being murdered, and that a photo of Maureen Prescott was found at the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get leaving clues. <laughs> a clue has been left for the first time. Yeah. Someone is leaving a clue. <laughs> leaving clues behind. <laughs> yes. Uh, cut back to uh, a grand tradition in the Scream franchise: news delivery via uh, television or story delivery via the news, mm-hmm. where Sydney uh, sees on the news about Cotton Weary's murder. And then we get a Red Right Hand remix mm. as we uh, cut to Hollywood and Sunrise Studios. What did you think of the Red Right Hand remix, Scott? It's good. It's solid. I think it reminded me a lot of in the Bourne Ultimatum when they had Moby come in and do a new remix of Extreme Ways. I think it, oh, think it, it, it irked me somewhat though because um, I'm a massive Nick Cave fan and love you know like most people love Red Red Hand so you just like, you know it's going to be in the movie and then when it does kick in you're kind of oh here it is and then the fact that it's different you're like oh mm-hmm. you just have your expectations built up and then it's like now we we remix the song I think Nick Cave did it specifically for the movie as well. Which I, I, was, I, was try, I was looking through the lyrics to try to find out, like, if there's any allusions to the plot line and stuff, but not really. It seems as if he just did it maybe for a paycheck, and then was like, yeah, I'll write a version of it, fine. And then, like, it did, you know, there's some sort of allusions to, like, bloodlines and stuff like that. It's like, I don't know if that's anything to do with, is it supposed to be because Red Right Hand, the original song, is like, well, it's a figure of death traipsing through the town and stuff. But it seems that the lyrics <laughs> of Red Right Hand 2 are specifically addressing Roman, maybe? But then I don't know. Like, it's, it seems to be very vague. So, um, I have to ask Nick Cave himself. Yeah, we meet the cast of Stab 3 and the crew. We meet Roland, the director of the movie, and he's uh, like very put off about the movie being stalled. It's very like, why me? I can't believe this is happening to me. We get one of my favorite... So, like, they're, they're, they have the argument, the cast and, and Roland, about, like, if this movie had anything to do with Cotton's murder. And Kincaid and another cop are like walking past the set. It's like a set of Sydney's house. And they're like, hey, you know, do you think this movie had anything to do with Cotton being murdered? And the guy's like, the victim was stabbed. He was in stab. <laughs> We're like, no, I got it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he, was, he was making a movie called Stab. He was stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> That that second cop I, is like one of my favorite characters though, because he just he just so he's so weary of everything. He's beyond he's beyond cotton weary. This guy, I I like him like most of the time. There's only one line coming up that I I really really hate because it feels like bad improv. But uh, we'll get there. No. We meet the actor Tyson, who is playing the the Randy proxy in Stab Three, who everyone online thought was for sure going to be playing Joel in Stab Two. Great. Yep. <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> yep. Uh, I really enjoy it. Tyson's the first one to just throw it out there and be like, well, what if it's Sydney? And mm-hmm. I appreciated that because it's like, that's such an obvious move, the third one to make. There's a, there's a deleted scene where they're, after uh, Jenny McCarthy dies, they are all talking about, 
you know, who's next and who could be the killer and all of this. And it's this really great scene where that character is talking about like, well, you know, in these kinds of movies, this happens. In these kinds of movies, this happens. And it's like, and everyone's just like, you really are playing Randy, huh? And he was just like, man, and he gets really mad and it's funny. I, yeah, Tyson's one of my favorite well, well, we'll talk about it. He's one of many really cool, funny new characters that this movie introduces and doesn't do a whole lot with. Yes, that's true. That's true. Other than raise the body count. Including Emily Mortimer. I love Emily Mortimer in this movie. I love the like character that she's playing on top of her character. Yeah. Uh, she won a talent search and is, is playing the, the Sidney Prescott proxy. Mm. Emily Mortimer, who in the original draft of the script, right before shooting, they cut this. She was the other killer, and they, she was dating Roman. And it added this other layer of, oh, he's, he's Sidney's brother, and he's dating the actress playing mm. his sister. Ooh. And there was like this added, like weird, kind of creepy, horror movie creepiness. Yeah, this creepy layer of, of uh, incest, incestual creepiness mm. um, that was uh, kind of interesting. And I would have loved to have seen Emily Mortimer play a killer. But they ended up not going in that. Yeah. Two killers, three movies in a row might have bugged me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll be honest. I don't like that it's only one killer here. I feel like it should be more. But, well, I mean, you can't beat Scream Three with it being like a cult. That's amazing. Yeah, right. Yeah, that would have been incredible. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Oh, can either of you tell me who Jenny McCarthy is supposed to be playing? Is she like Tatum? Is she a, uh, a character from Scream Two? Kind of the- I don't think so. I think she's playing an original character. Yeah, because you assume that Tatum would have died in stab one because she makes that that comment about how she gets out of the shower she she's only in two scenes yeah she's only in two scenes yeah she makes that comment about that and so i think she's just is she almost kind of playing herself because was she kind of a celebrity at this point because of like the mtv stuff yeah because it's like singled out and all of that yeah it was like her and carmen electra were like the big people at the big the big yeah yeah this type of uh actress at this point yeah gail visits the set of stab three mm-hmm. is really taken aback by the accuracy of it. And I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, it's a pretty, it was, it's weird. I never think of that as being Sydney's house just because the surroundings are so different because it's in a soundstage. Well, they do this really cool thing. I think Wes Craven shoots this really well, this scene in particular, where you kind of get a vibe for what's going on, but you don't, have the chance to really take it in. He doesn't give you any solid establishing shots, really. He's constantly moving the camera, constantly cutting around. Patrick Lussier is constantly cutting around. So you don't get a good look at it until Sydney shows up on this side. Right, right, right. And then you're like, oh, shit. Okay, they recreated everything. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I think that rules. So. Speaking of rules, at this point, we are introduced to Parker Posey, who is is playing Gail Weathers in this movie. Uh, (laughs) Fucking love Parker Posey. Yeah. And uh, this is a great Parker Posey performance. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Like, I don't think Parker Posey is ever, like, bad in anything. I think he's one of those sort of guaranteed sort of knockout actresses, really, when she comes in there. Was there any chance that – was she, like, in consideration for – Gail Weathers when the original Scream came about, or would she have been too young at that time? Because it seems like it's almost like an in-joke, because she's so well-suited to that part, that you're like, yeah, I can imagine that maybe she it was neck and neck between her and Courtney Cox, and now they've, they've done it no. this way. No, Courtney Cox is the only person that auditioned because she went after it after reading the script. They hadn't even started auditioning for the character yet, so. Yeah. So maybe. Maybe she would have gotten the call. Yeah, yeah it's possible. Who knows? I um, love the little detail that she has been playing Gail 
for two movies now and is just so in the weeds with the character and feels like she knows Gail and is just following her. And like this movie took me longer to watch because I found myself rewinding little <laughs> moments that Parker Posey does. And it's never when she has lines. It's always just her like reacting to stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it's almost as if she's... I think it's just the natural charisma of Parker Posey where there's lines she has, particularly when she's they have the confrontation with John Milton and she does this whole like, you know, you're obsessed with her! And you're obsessed with our daughter, and it's so over yeah. the top. But it's like, and if any other person was doing that in a screen movie, you're like, this is too much. But because it's Parker Posey, you're like, okay, yeah, it works. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going. Well, with I would say it is too much for a screen movie. If this was a normal screen movie, I think Parker Posey would be very much out of place in the movie. But because of the overall sillier tone, I think she fits everything very well. She understands the assignment. She definitely understands the assignment. I I, I think that a lot of the other actors are very confused about like, wait, this this tone feels different than the other Scream movies. Where Which way are we going with this? Mm-hmm. Wes Graven just turned to Parker Posey on the first day and was like, camp. Yeah. Just like, oh, okay. <laughs> Lead it. Roll with it. Yeah. Lead the tone. We um, meet Dewey. Mm-hmm. Dewey has left Woodsboro. And is in LA, so it's weird. I, every every person in the audience had to have been like, "Oh, she's dating, he's dating Parker Posey," but it isn't revealed until like the next scene. Gail treats it like a "Whoa, you guys are dating," and I'm like, of course they are. Yeah, Look yeah, at their, yeah. Their body language. That would have been weird <laughs> right. though if they also had the Emily Mortimer Roman thing going on. So like, oh, so he's dating a, a woman playing his sister, right. and Dewey's playing Dewey's dating a woman who's playing his ex-girlfriend. It's like, that's just incestuousness upon incestuousness. It's just too much. Too much. <laughs> we see uh, that they have reset after Gail hopping in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. Uh, things didn't work out. Not unlike Han and Leia in Force Awakens. Mm. Their, their base natures overcame their, their love for each other, and they were driven and kind of settled back into their old ways. That's just it's the, it's the Dewey Gale way. It almost feels like you have to have every movie starts with them reconnecting after having broken up. Mm. How do you feel, Scott? I don't like it. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't like it because I don't like. I don't like the reset because I think it. I I think it would be. Uh, I think the reason that I like Gale's arc in the fourth film so much is because she is happy but also not content with the life that she has. Like, she loves Dewey, and this life is very peaceful, but also she misses the chase. She misses journalism. And, you know, she's trying to uh, kind of weasel her way back into it. And the murders start happening, and then that leads the ball rolling. And And I feel like I wish that was more of what was going on here than them sort of bringing the murder to her, you know, and being like, hey, you ready to get back in there? (laughs) You know, like, come out of retirement? It just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right, and I don't like it as a it just feels like a rehash, and less good than Scream 2. I think think the rekindling of their romance in Scream 2 rules, and here it just feels... Blah. It feels like an afterthought, and I don't. I feel like their chemistry isn't even as good as it was in Scream Two. You know, it was really this scene between Gale and Dewey where they're doing the back and forth, and it echoes so much that, like you said, Scott, their encounter in Scream Two. Mm-hmm. This was when I like clocked that everyone is just like a little bit dumber. Yeah. <laughs> where it, it's just you're missing that Kevin Williams yep. sharpness, and they feel a little less alive. And it reminded me a lot of Last Stand, mm-hmm. where I'm like, that's 
I recognize these actors and these characters, but that that life behind the eyes isn't quite as there. Right. Mm. Yes. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. And we meet Tom, who is playing Dewey. He's like a total two thousands babe. And I love the the red herring joke that he makes about like maybe I'll cut your brake lines. Yeah, Dewey. Yeah, <laughs> or Gale. Yeah, he's a he's a douche. He's this a guy. Yeah. He's a big douche. Yeah. Well, so there's a there's one moment between Dewey and Gale that I really do like is when she's got the camera sneaked into her bag, and he just sort of like voicelessly sort of looks at it. To indicate that he knows that that's happening, and she's like, "Oh yeah, like okay, oh fair enough, yeah, I have got this." You know, it does indicate like, "Oh, no, yeah. these two, these two people do really know each other." He completely knows exactly what Gail will do as soon as she sets foot on set. It's a great feeling of two people who have been in a relationship and known each other for so long that they don't get to none of the normal BS or tricks can get past the other one, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. I do really like that every actor from the first two Stab movies, David Schwimmer, Tori Spelling, all of them realize, oh, this is a bad idea to make a Stab 3 not based on reality, so we're not going to do this. Everyone except for Parker Posey's actress, <laughs> who's just like, yeah, I'll do another one, I don't care. What, what's I the am implication? Gale. Who was David Swimmer? Was he the, the Dewey? He was Dewey. He was Dewey originally. Yeah, okay. he was, yeah, he was Dewey in Stab and Stab 2. Oh, okay. But decided not to come back for the sequel. Uh. <laughs> Gail leaves the Stab 3 studio. There's a studio tour going on where uh, Jay and Silent Bob are. And Gail meets Jay and Silent Bob. Jay mistakes <laughs> Gail for Connie Chung. Connie fucking Chung. Yeah. So, <laughs> hey, Connie, how's Maury? <laughs> The worst. I hate this. <laughs> so my my question for Viewisk Universe fans. Uh-huh. So this is post Dogma, but pre Jane Silent Bob Part One. They I, haven't been to Hollywood yet. No, well, I think it's concurrent with Jane Silent Bob. Yeah. Oh, so like while they're getting the movie shut down, they go on a studio tour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they go do go on a studio tour in in that. But what's weird is that in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, they end up on the set of Scream 3 or Scream 4 and the the go- ghost face is a monkey because everybody loves monkeys, right? Mm-hmm. And it's Suzanne. Everyone in Jane Silent Bob movie sure does. Right. And then but then so so they're shooting Scream and Wes Craven is the director. But then in this, they're on a studio tour where they're filming Stab 3. So apparently Jay and Silent Bob exist in multiple universes. Um, I love it. So yeah. who knows where this exists in time and space. <laughs> you could also say that maybe because, you know, Jason Mewes is so similar to Jay in real life that maybe it's like, oh, this is just Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes have wanted to play Kevin Smith doesn't say anything. <laughs> I like that. That's good. <laughs> no, I think he says Silent Bob. No. He says, check it out, Silent Bob. <laughs> says his full name. Yeah, check it out, Silent Bob. I think that this was at the behest of Bob Weinstein, wasn't it? That those two guys show up. Like, and I think it was a very much like, I think even Kevin Smith's been on record. Like, I oh, weren't really interested until it was like, oh, we get paid to do it. Oh, fine. Yeah. And I think Jason Mewes yeah. was really thrilled that they got a, a, a free t-shirt and stuff. Yeah. Jason Mewes only goes at a 10, but you can tell Kevin Smith's like, even for Silent Bob, he's at like a four or five. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Bob wanted a ton of cameos in this. He thought that would be really funny, which doesn't really strike me as the correct choice for a screen movie to do the thing that's really funny. I feel like at a certain point, he just started mixing up in his head scary movie and scream and it's just like it is very interesting how now 30 years out we can watch scream specifically like the first one mm-hmm. and like kind of recognize it and talk about it like a, like a film 
But at the time, I think what pop culture took away from it, as pop culture does, kind of not taking the heart of the thing away Mm -hmm. of what makes it popular. So like, oh, yeah, they like the meta 90s tongue in cheek comedy of it, like the Tory Spelling stuff Mm -hmm. and the humor of it. So let's lean on that, especially in the wake of all the business you're talking about before, where they couldn't lean on the violence and the rip from the headlines aspect of it. Right, right. Absolutely. Sydney's visiting her dad. Is this the same guy from Scream 1? Oh, it's him. Is this the same guy? Yeah. It is? Mm-hmm. That's a, it was just nice to see him. It's like, oh, yeah, it's Neil Prescott. There he is. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the real blink and you miss it role in Scream 1. And it's like, well, not that you miss it, but like, it's just such a, eh, you know, <laughs> it's plot point role. And I was like, yeah, I guess a little chance to actually act and breathe in this thing. I'm not sure if the actress playing Marine is the same actress that was in like the photo. <laughs> In in the first scream, I'm not sure if that's the same person. They might have just cast a look alike, uh, hmm. but yeah, the dad is definitely the same. Yeah. And for the first time, Sydney kind of blames her mom. If mom hadn't have done this, if mom hadn't been leading the secret life, none of this would have happened. Right. And it was the first time I had ever heard her antagonize her mom in that way in the series, and I couldn't tell if it rung false. Or was like, well, maybe this is a new outlet she's having of being angry at her mom instead of sanctifying her, putting her on this pedestal. So I don't dislike the mom stuff in this, the the revelations about Maureen Prescott and and her previous life. But I don't love the implication that because this these things happened to her, she became this person who slept around and cheated on her husband with multiple men. The implication is that because she was abused in Hollywood, she became this person who slept with Billy's father and slept with Cotton Weary and cheated on her husband and apparently slept with lots of people in town. It's sort of the movie sort of has the same kind of finger wagging mentality that many of the villains have in the series. Yeah. I don't love that implication and I don't, I really, really hate the aspect of this, which is Sydney being haunt, literally haunted by her mother. Yeah. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think of the first dream sequence in the franchise's history? I fucking hate it. Yeah. I hate it so much. It does. Like, it's, it, the thing is, though, because, again, it has a real Elm Street quality. It's like Tina in Elm Street 1. The mist, the mist rolling down the yeah. hills. The thing is, yeah. in those movies, great. And Scream, No. <laughs> like Scream has a it has a, a level of like it's supposed to be somewhat a believable version of it. It's the movie that acknowledges that movies exist. So you're right. supposed to be able to buy all this stuff. So then when they throw in elements like the ghost of her mother coming in, it's just like Ugh. this is not It's jarring, yeah. 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 This is not the tone. This is not the plot. This is not the yeah. the franchise for this. It doesn't it just doesn't fit here. I think it's out of place in the franchise as a whole and the tone of the first two films. And I also think it's out of place in the tone of this film. It doesn't feel like it even fits in Scream 3. And Scream 3, I think, is so tonally inconsistent with the rest of the franchise. But even still, I think the ghost of Marine Prescott haunting her dreams is like bullshit. I, <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. And then I hate that they bring it back into reality later on with Roman fucking with her, mm. with the ghost of her mother. Doing the full and, on And Mysterio. so then it's like, how did you know? Well, how did you know she had a dream about her mother haunting her through the They're window? They're a dyad, Scott. Yeah, oh, <laughs> they see each other's <laughs> dreams. The fucking worst. I hate it. I hate it. So It's the thing I hate the most about this movie. Um, I, I absolutely despise 
all of the Marine Prescott ghost bullshit. Mm. I hate it. It's awful. It's it yeah it's it's jarring. It's really inconsistent with and really it kind of like like Niall said it could be great. It made me it makes me want a, like a two thousands Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Oh, you did get that technically, <laughs> but you you didn't want that version. <laughs> but oh, right, very very true, very very true. <laughs> maybe another uh, Jenny Mc- uh, 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 another attempt at it, maybe <laughs> a Wes Craven one. There we go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Jenny McCarthy visits the Sunrise Studios to like look looking for Roman, which I don't know. It's like that setup is really weird to me. Like, where is this? Mm-hmm. Is this production offices? Are these like studio offices? But whatever. She uh, is calling Roman. Uh, it's Ghostface. <laughs> And is like read lines for that movie that we're in the middle of filming, and she's like, "Okay, I really hate that." I mean, I get it. I get why you would do this logically if you're the killer, but the fact that he has a fake Roman voice on the voice changer <laughs> when he is in fact Roman That's is the silliest thing. And I mean, I know, I know why he does it. It's so that like when. If Roman was the killer, why would he have his own voice on the voice changer? I get it, but it's, it's, man, it's silly. It's real silly. He's also just not very creative compared to past Ghostfaces. And, and the, just in the way that he's able to keep Jenny McCarthy on the phone, yeah. the Billy Loomis Ghostface, there was like a, a really scary charm to him. Yeah. Where he kind of almost seduces Cece. We're like, we're like, oh, who is this guy? But like, come on, let's go back to reading the script. It doesn't. There's not enough character in either of these two no. for this to really feel. Mm. And I don't know. Even the cynicism of like, I only have two lines. I'm, I, you know, why am I naked? It just it feels so hammy compared to the other yeah. movies. Well, and, uh, the only part of it that I do like is the meta joke of her being like, I'm in two scenes and then I get killed. And she's literally in two scenes and then gets killed. <laughs> So, like, I think that's kind of funny, I guess. Mm. Uh, from at a certain, le- it's, it's kind of funny, I guess. Is Scream the, Three is the way you can describe a lot of this movie? Yeah. Oh, uh, not to be missed, Jenny McCarthy accidentally knocks over and breaks uh, like a music video award that Roman won, and like knocks the head off of it. And then she is like chased by Ghostface. It's business as usual. She gets punched through a window and then stabbed. We do get that part where. She keeps grabbing weapons, and they're all props. Yeah. So she'll grab, like, a knife, and it'll be a prop knife. But that's so silly. I, I just, I don't know if I like it. I don't know if oh, I... Oh, I don't know if I do either. I'm just saying uh, it's, it, it's a thing that happens. It is a thing that happens. I, it's just so goofy. I don't know, I man. think it's because it's when she grabs the prop knife, it's just, it's just flopping all over the place. And it's like, well, surely a prop knife would still need to be steady. So it could function yeah. as a prop. Like, why would they have a thing that's just, it might as well be liquid. It's so floppy. Yeah, this right. is accidentally the the props for the uh, Blunt Man and Chronic movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's way better if she gets a knife that seems like a knife and goes to stab Ghostface, and it's it, it goes in. It goes in. Yeah, it's like a it's you know it's like one of those mm-hmm. uh, push retractable. knives, retractable. That's it. No, the knife, like a retractable twist. knife. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's way more better than the stupid floppy knife. It also feels as well like the this, the thing with like the multiple ghost faces as well, like the the different costumes. You feel like that's a creative hook. Like yeah, you could do something with that. And they just kind of like, no, he's just one of them. And that's as much as we do with it. It's like, oh, yeah. wouldn't you, if you had more time, couldn't you have played with that a bit more? Or, you know, it just felt like it's a bit of like... You would have thought. Yeah. Some more like Scooby-Doo style antics with like the multiple costumes. Yeah. Uh, then cut to Gail and Dewey trying to get coffee. Making it work. Talking it out. We, <laughs> we kind of get to learn more about why the relationship didn't work. Very Han and Leia. Uh, with Gail being Han. Gail, Gail just couldn't stop being Gail Weathers. She was just too damn good at it. 
And Dewey didn't want to leave Woodsboro, but now he's in Hollywood. Como esta, Dewey? Mm-hmm. And Gail being Gail is able to see that, you know, Dewey's like holding some cards to the chest and kind of tells her about the Maureen Prescott situation that's happening. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's he's in Hollywood to consult on this movie. And I, I assume it's because, like, he couldn't get a job as a cop again in Woodsboro, probably at the time, because uh, he's still, you know, very injured. He has his limp still. It's not as... Not even talking about his Scream 2 injuries. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. With the Scream 2 injuries, which apparently did nothing to his body. <laughs> um, but he, it, in fact, it fixed his limp, apparently. But, but hey, uh, wow. Yeah, wow. Well, you did me a favor, Ghostface. Um, <laughs> it's like so, the Grandpa Joe dance. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, yeah, he's consulting on this movie for the paycheck and then ends up um, in a relationship with the actress playing Gail, but I feel like I also feel like there's a part of me that thinks, and I don't, I don't think they make this explicit, but there's a part of me that thinks that Parker Posey is only dating him to get further in the head Absolutely. of Gail Weathers, mm. you know, and that she doesn't really care about him really, and and yeah, so like I, I don't know, it's he's still a sap, you know, he's mm-hmm. still a sucker. Uh, <laughs> she tells Gail about the uh, the file on Sydney that was stolen. Mm-hmm. Right. Wonder where that went. I don't know. And then uh, Dewey gets a call from Jennifer, Parker Posey's name in the movie, and they go to visit her house where we meet her security guard played by Patrick Warburton. So the studio tour mentioned the Seinfeld set. They're like, oh, over here is where they used to film Seinfeld. And then we meet Putty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. It really does make me shudder every time he calls Dewey Dewdrop. Like, it's such a, I don't know why that nickname sticks in my craw so much, but it's just because it's, because he has such disdain for, for Dewey, and he's so condescending mm-hmm. to him, and every time, like, yeah, dude, or up. It's just like, it just makes you want to punch <laughs> him, the way he says it. Uh, Patrick Warburton, not unlike Parker Posey, in that he is, knows exactly what kind of movie he's in this time, mm-hmm. but, like, would be very out of place in any other screen movie. Mm. Yeah. Um, Love that moment where she, Two like, franchises in a row. Oh, that's right. With Patrick Warburton. Uh, Yeah. In in, in roles that uh, are a little... uh, Beneath him. Beneath him. Yes, very much so. (laughs) I love that little moment where Parker Posey just leaps into Stone's arms and he just goes with it. Again, that's another very, like, if that was in Scream 2, you'd been like, what? What the hell's happening here? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. That's the thing. A lot of the things that I don't like in these movies, stripped of the context of a Scream movie, I love. I love them. Mm. Um, And that's one of those things where it's like, that does not belong in a Scream movie, but God damn it, do I... I can watch it all day on a loop. It's the best. <laughs> I kind of want to see you, you guys, though, like, oh, only Patrick Warburton would continue throughout all the franchises you cover. So, like, playing Colossus in the X-Men franchise next, like, it's like, oh, hey. is that Patrick Warburton? Like, yeah, that's right. He's just sitting in all the metal gear. <laughs> oh, and the reason Jennifer called Dewey is she's really upset because they find out that Jenny McCarthy's been murdered and the pattern is established that the people are being killed in the order that they're killed in the movie. Mm-hmm. But that's a problem because is this where we learn about the multiple scripts, or is that later? Yeah, no, this is here. Yeah, there are multiple scripts because they want to keep stuff off the internet, right? And so, like, we don't know what order. And I thought that was a really cool uh, wrench gear. I don't know complication of there yeah. being multiple drafts, so you're not sure what draft is going to be used by the killer. Mm. Yeah, there's this great joke in the Jenny McCarthy death scene where she was like, that's, that's not in the script. What are you doing? And he's like, it's in my script. And she's he's like, there's another fucking script? And like, <laughs> how am I to the lines if, I, if we just keep changing the script every 15 minutes? And uh, in the commentary, like, uh, Wes and the producer were both like, yeah, that's... 
<laughs> that's <laughs> that's really just about the making of this and Scream Two. Though <laughs> we said that so many times on both of those sets, uh, it was insane. Kind of speaking to your theory about Parker Posey just keeping Dewey around for her character. Dewey's like living in a trailer. <laughs> yeah, in, not in her, not in her house. Yeah, in Gen- on Jennifer's property. Yeah, and it's a bummer. It's a real bummer. This is a this is that 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 trailer that he lives in is it's it's rough. It's like Brad Pitt's trailer in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, yeah, it's really old and not very. It's just yeah. it's it's a it's a heap. I like sure. the uh, we cut back to the police station. I really like the back and forth between Patrick Dempsey and the other cop, mm-hmm. where they're like, "Hey, how does this shake out?" Like, yeah, well, normally one cop makes it, one cop dies, <laughs> <laughs> and and they they both survive them if I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 But in kind of like a way where you kind of feel like the movie forgot about them. Mm. Well, they didn't forget about Patrick Dempsey, but they definitely forgot about the other guy. Right, 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 yeah. right. right. <laughs> I was like, I, think I, had that, I was pained to see that, though, because I was like, oh, I really like this guy. And as the third act, I was like, where, where did he go? <laughs> like, it's just, no, we just, yeah. we just forgot that he was in the film. <laughs> that kind of yeah. happens. You either die. If you're a cop in a screen movie, you're either killed or the movie literally forgets that you exist. Yep. 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 And this is when Sydney gets a call from her mom from mother mm-hmm. and it's the first roger l jackson sydney interaction of the movie mm. right so so ghostface has found her even in this compound even with her in seclusion ghostface has found her once again roger jackson turning in a really great performance is ghostface playing roman and really doing a good job of sort of recreating scott foley's patter like mm-hmm. the way his, he speaks his intonations he's really good at that in all three Scream films. Mm. I, I and I only say three because I don't remember how good he is added in the fourth one. <laughs> oh, as like the people, yeah, yeah. It'll mm. be. It'll. I'll be curious when yeah. we get there. There's just something really magical about Roger L. Jackson saying yeah. Sydney. Yeah, there's, a, there's something quite like always strange to in all the Scream movies where it's like when Ghostface calls, he has this familiarity with Sydney. Where it's just it's like, yes, it's us together again. Where it's it is kind of like that because like, oh, these two performers are together again. But it's like, well, every time it's a different person, though. So it's it's, mm-hmm. it's a bit of an odd kind of oxymoron in that way of like, you yeah. know, the familiarity it's, with it's, complete strangers speaking for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a different person with a different beef with Sydney for for different reasons. Mm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Scott Foley, we cut back to the rap party mm-hmm. that they're all having. Tom is ripping pages out of the script. They're like shows over. Emily Mortimer's being really like, oh, well, I wanted to be in a movie, but I guess people are getting murdered, so like that's that's bad. <laughs> oh, Emily Mortimer. <laughs> and Gail is spying on this party as it's happening. She sees Dewey going off with Parker Posey, and then Gail and Dewey have it aside, and that's where we learned that there was a two-year period before Maureen met Sydney's dad that no one knows where she was. Mm-hmm. She just fell off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. But all of the photos that have been left at the scene of the crime have been from this, like, this gap in Maureen's life. Right. And again, it feels so unscreamed to me. But it begins as a very scream-ish sequence. But then the, the conclusion is not at all, where they get the, the sinister faxes start landing in, and they start getting uh, new script pages in. Which is like, oh right, that does happen before yeah. before Sydney shows up. That's yeah, right. but what happens before all of that is Patrick Warburton is raiding the trailer. Oh yeah, yeah. and and uh, makes that really below the belt joke about Tatum. Yeah, what what the hell was that? Like that just comes. Yeah. Why does he hate Dewey so much? What is this guy's beef with him? 
while he's on the phone with Dewey. And then we get like the Dewey. There's also a Dewey voice change. And like everyone's and then Stone like survives the stabbing. They all find him. He collapses. And that's when like. Is it supposed to be the implication, though, that maybe he has a thing for Parker Posey's character and he resents Dewey being there? I think he's just a stone cold professional. I think he just really takes his job super seriously, like any yeah. good Patrick Warburton character. But just the, the, the Tatum comments so horrible, though. It's just like, why would you, unless you had some really deep seething resentment towards someone, why would you make a crack about his dead sister? Like that's horrible. Yeah, he's a prick. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, he doesn't like him coming in here and and trying to tell him how to do his job. I think that's what he resents. Is yeah, like, your list of clients leads like the obituaries. He just he sees him as like a threat. I think, and not, I don't think a threat romantically to Parker Posey's character. I think just a threat. Like bullshit alpha male. Yeah, al- yeah, exactly. Bullshit alpha male shit. I think yeah. that's what it is. But yeah, the Nile, we get one of my favorite, really having fun with the premise of like a slasher inside of a slasher movie mm-hmm. with the new pages coming in mm-hmm. and they're like reading it and then they all run out and then tommy's like but whoever smells the gas and then like it blows up <laughs> this is the section that feels the most like clue i was going to say that's actually i think this movie works better as a murder mystery mm-hmm. than a slasher movie yes and we'll talk a lot more about that going on but yeah this is very clue very mm-hmm. clue yeah uh, they're all running as a group running from room to room you know, trying to figure stuff. It reminds me of the scene where, uh, where uh, he, the the butler is like leading the group around to like explain how certain things could have happened. The you know, um, <laughs> it's very clue. screwball. Yeah, very screwball. Yeah, yeah. You, could, you could do a Scooby Doo thing, like running from one side of the corridor to the next, and then back again, and it's like, oh, it's a ghost chasing them this time, and the next time it's like freaking a clown or yeah. something. Like, this. right, right. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first explosion in the series as well. I think yeah. that, that 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 sticks in my craw a little bit, though. It's just like, yeah, I, I know it, it is like an escalation of like, yeah. Well, you know, these things have to get bigger and more flamboyant as they go on. But it's just like, yeah, Ghostface, he's a stabber. Like, that's what he does. He stabs and guts people. And then the fact that he's like, he's had, he has a whole franchise based on his antics called Stab. And then to find out, like, no, this time it's he, he blows up a whole house. And it's like, it, yeah. it's a big bit of pyrotechnics. It's a little jigsaw. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't. Str- I guess, you know, it is just like, well, it's, it's, it's a different guy each time, so they can do whatever yeah. they want, really. But, and I think it's, I think it's also a side effect of like him not having a partner, you know? And it's like, it's like he can't be in two places at once now. So now he has to set traps mm-hmm. and, right, right, and right. shit like that because he can't always be there. I get it, but, all, but I, I'm with you, Niall. I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. like it. I'm not into it. Yeah. They have a hell of a roll down the hill. There's that great line where Parker Posey's going, I can't stop rolling down this hill. <laughs> <laughs> She's going. It's <laughs> uh, great. Uh, it's very silly, but I do love it. Gail is, uh, so Dewey's like on top of the hill, sees Gail getting menaced by Ghostface and plugs him, mm-hmm. just guns him down. But when they run down the hill to meet each other, Ghostface has disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which, as we learn later, is because he has taken to wearing a bulletproof vest now. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Uh, not, definitely not. Uh, the rekindling. The magic is back. The sparks are flying again mm-hmm. because Dewey saved Gail's life. We have a, like a, just a big old flashing light red herring scene where Emily Mortimer is like, what, what, what happened? Yeah, and yeah. Dewey's like, wait, why are, you, why are you all the way over there? <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things, too, of like dropping her as a killer is like it kind of makes sense almost as well because just to look at emily mortimer she looks like she's like 90 pounds soaking wet it doesn't feel like she could kill anybody she's just so slight she's so you know gazelle like it's like well you know you have to 
with any you know any of these things you have to have a you know suspension of disbelief and stuff but it's like everything about it's like i don't think if she jumped on top of someone and tried to stab them i think that she seems like she'd be such a slight you know uh light person that it was easily cast her off it'd be a bit dis- it would be a bit distracting to me personally but then at the same time there's so many other ridiculous things in this movie that would probably be right. the, the the least of the problems really right I think I think another large issue I have with the tone of this movie is like we just watched this guy get blown the fuck up. I mean, super blown up. Um, like we oh, watched, Tom? yeah, we watched his body explode before the house explodes. Like it's kind of crazy, and they're all like cracking jokes and acting like it's like whatever, but not in the way that they do, not the like desensitized way that they do in the first scream. In a we don't take this seriously. We don't take this seriously at all kind of way and it really does bother me i think tonally it's a subtle difference yeah it makes it makes none of the deaths matter you know Mm -hmm. oh and speaking of none of the deaths mattering um one of the uh producers named kathy conrad during a uh an interview after the movie had wrapped and before the movie was released she was asked, like, so, are you guys planning on making a Scream 4? And she was like, well, you know, y- you never say never. You know, if if Nev Campbell, David Arquette, and, and, uh, and Courtney Cox want to come back to do another, <laughs> oh, another no. Scream, no. you know, I, I, I'm sure that we would probably want to do that as well sometime in the future. So she spoils the fact that Sydney, uh, 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 Dewey, Dewey and, and Gail all survived this movie, and as a result, she was not invited back to uh, to be a producer on Scream Four, in which she sued the Weinstein Company for um, rights and won. Oh. So yeah, oh. so she she did end up making money on Scream Four from that lawsuit, but she did have to take them to court. Okay, yeah. Gosh, the, the, this franchise and spoilers, man. I know, I know, absolutely. <laughs> Cut back to the police station. We get some fun cop versus cop action in between Kincaid and Dewey. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We've got three dead celebrities and one angry mayor. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that, that the, uh, like, was that a threat? What do you think? Was that a threat? <laughs> like, it's a Yeah, threat. that was great. Yeah. <laughs> any, any time the movie got me to kind of like chuckle or smile, I like wrote it down in my notes. Like, oh, that was a good joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then I clocked it. Uh, 50 minutes into the movie, Sydney and Dewey reunite. Mm-hmm. Sydney goes down to the station. It's, it, take, it takes that long for the trio to reunite. Yeah. It's so telling, too, that she shows up and it's like, that's the outfit she wears the rest of this movie as well. <laughs> She's there <laughs> so true. briefly. Yeah, yeah. It's also the outfit that she ends Scream 2 wearing. It's the exact same outfit. Oh. Uh, it's, the gr- it's the green shirt. Brown jacket. It's the same outfit, including Derek's letters. She's wearing Derek's letters. <laughs> Maybe she's just like, there's this... a good chance these are going to get bloody again. I don't want to ruin my new clothes, so I'll just wear the old stuff again. Yeah, yeah. She like, has like an action movie thing where she pulls it out of, from under her bed. Yeah. Like, they do do that. Um... It's just so interesting. It's like it's like they they turn Sydney into a into a like a superhero, like you said. She puts on a uniform. Yeah, she has like a uniform that she wears when she's gonna take down Ghostface, and it's like you didn't have that in the first movie. There's, there's one <laughs> like, of those things to do, and it, it's it's criminal. It happens in a lot of movies, but it's very egregious in this. There's a scene where they're flipping through Sydney's file. And there's a, a picture of like young Nev Campbell taken somewhere sometime, and then there's a picture that's very blatantly a publicity still for Scream Two, where she's like the yeah. lighting's exactly the same. It's her on the stage, like in the finale yeah. of the movie. It's like 
how can you not think how people did you are going to know that what that shot? is? You know, that's yeah. I love it. I love it. It's like when in a movie where someone's photo ID photo of another character is like from the poster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, Dewey and Sydney have a conversation. Sydney's logic is like, Dewey, like, he called my house. He knows where I am. At least here, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And it's cool. I think this is, at times, the movie... My dog sure is, though. Yeah, my dog sure as hell is alone. <laughs> and I, I like how we see that Sydney's matured enough to where she knows the difference of the advantage of being with people, even if she's not like emotionally ready to like be with people again. Yeah. So this is five years after Maureen Prescott's death. Maureen Prescott died in 1995. Now this is the year 2000, or at best... Or, or, you know, maybe 99, because this was originally supposed to be released in December of 99, and then they pushed it back two months um, for some reshoots that they did in January. This is kind of, I, uh, I thought <laughs> it is 99. It's like, well, it's the millennium. You know, motives are incidental. It's like, no, this, this guy has motive. He has nothing but yeah. freaking motive at the end of this damn thing. Yeah, that's true. Very wow. true. Uh, the, maybe the most motive of any, <laughs> of any killer in this screen movie. But... Yeah, it's so that means that it's been five years since the death of Maureen Prescott when she's a senior in Scream, which means she would have been a junior when her mother died, which mean which puts her at like 16, 17. So let's say 17. So that means that she's 22 in this, but she's walking around in this movie like she's 35. Yeah. And this is like one of those things that happens. It happened in Buffy too, where she goes from high school student college student and then the next year she's 35 Um, you know like that's just the vibe they're just like and she's an adult now like and and that's definitely the vibe that you get in this movie and i know that that's kind of uh, part of that is a side effect of you know all of the stuff that they were dealing with in in the press and and all that and wanting this to be an adult thriller versus a teen slasher film Mm, But I do think it feels very weird how old Sydney feels in this movie versus the previous two films. When you when you put it together and you put the timeline that the movies establish. Yeah, and you're like, she is twenty two and she is acting like I mean, really, just acting like uh I don't know, like like Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis returning for Halloween H two O, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I really like, so they go to the station, like inside the, the sheriff's office. I really like the awkward hug between Gail and Sydney because it's like, we've been through so much together, but we've really only spent like 40 hours together. Yeah. Total. It was something that I really liked in that original draft of Scream 2 is like they had that kind of relationship in that original draft. Uh, okay. And so like I'm I I was ex- I'm excited after reading that original Scream 2 draft, seeing that hug happen here and being like, "Oh, yeah, that was the thing. Oh, nice. Okay, cool." Cuz I really like that. I I think you're right. I think it's a really cool idea where it's like we all really like each other, but also like we've been through a lot together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's yeah, they're not like a family, but right. like they are survivors together. Yeah. But speaking of family, there's someone waiting for them. There's a visitor and I think it's like do uh whose trailer? Doesn't matter. Uh it's <laughs> <laughs> they go back to Sunrise Studios and Martha Meeks is waiting for them, played by Heather Maserato. Mm. Yeah. I think it's um I think it's Parker Posey's trailer. Okay. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Um, and these are their trailers. Like this is not a set. Oh, really? This is the the trailers that were on set for Scream Three. Like they're they're just shooting this in the trailers wow. area. Yeah, 
um, because they're just like we got to save money. So and like I really, I really like Martha as a character. I really like this actress. I mean, like Princess Diaries, Welcome to the Dollhouse. I'm excited to see her come back and reprise her role in the new Scream. Oh, I thought they recast her. No, okay, no, it's great. her. Awesome. Yeah, cool, yeah. Cool, cool. yeah. It struck me as almost like a bit of a waste of a role, though, because like the idea of having Randy's yeah. sister there, great. But then like she's you know the sister of you know the the, the biggest movie nerd in Woodsboro. On a film set, and she doesn't seem to be fussed at all. This is like you could either have it a bit where she's just like really, oh my god, I'm, I'm I'm on a movie set. This is incredible. Or you could do it the other way. She's like, I don't care about any. That was all his thing. This, but, is, you know. this is my brother's thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they don't. She's just sort of I, there. She's just. I'm here. Yeah, to do they don't thing. do either one. I yeah. mean, in a, it's arguably the most. This was written in six weeks. Thing about this movie. Yeah, it which is like, oh, Randy had a sister that we never talked about, <laughs> and there's a tape with randy and he's like giving a last piece of advice that being said it's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie Mm -hmm. just because like i love randy and jamie kennedy's so good in that scene and it (laughs) it just god damn it (laughs) (laughs) yeah like it nails the the it nails like the funny and also like i just love the melancholy of like every little laugh hurts. Yeah. Sydney and 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 Gail. When and they Dewey. laugh at that moment, they they then get instantly sad because they're like, Oh, I really miss him. Mm. Yeah. Like it's, we are the audience. Yeah. It's 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 good. It almost didn't happen this way. Originally, in the in the Aaron Kruger draft, they brought Randy back full full, full, <laughs> full <shit. what>? alive. <laughs> um <How>? yes. <laughs> so the idea was that he was not dead. At the end of Scream Two, <laughs> they they resuscitated him, and he uh, uh, got back on his feet in the three years between Scream Two and Scream Three. But his family didn't tell anyone that he survived because they were just like, "We want him as far away from any of this and any of you people as possible." And so they put him into hiding, and he's in like 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 Witsec or something. And and he when he re- finds out about this stuff, he shows up here, Hell and yeah. they're like, "Oh my god, you're alive!" And like, <laughs> and like none of them had any idea. And like a duster, That's the, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. This 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 movie falls into soap opera territories, you know, in the end, so much already to have right. like it'd be like, "Randy, I thought you were dead. I was," you know, that that kind of thing would be no nope. ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. They they decided that was one of the first things to get exercised um, when, uh, when, I mean, when Kruger left the project. The thing is, though, it feels now, though, in the, the meta way of Scream, the fact that this is all pre-Saw, it's just so like, oh, Randy kind of beat Jigsaw at his own game. And the fact that he, he had really, wow, yeah. things set up, oh, I don't survive this, but I've got all these things laid out in advance just in case and stuff. But And, and maybe this is just the strength of Randy as a character, but like as obviously shoehorned and, and hackneyed as this is, I, I buy that Randy would have done this. Oh, yeah. yeah. And would have the forethought to be like, in case this is a franchise or a trilogy, I should lay down future rules in case I die. <laughs> right. Like totally checks out. But, but. Even Randy could not have foreseen any kind of reboot situation. Yeah. That's the thing. This because entire- that predates his, his death, or that, that, the, the idea of like re- horror remakes and all of that didn't start happening until after he died. So Even he, he had, wasn't that cynical. He, he didn't know about any of that. Well, you could, you could, yeah. At the same time, though, you did also have Friday the 13th, like the final chapter, and then a new beginning. So maybe he does have a tape in there somewhere like, okay, so there will be a period where they say, this is the end. But it's not going to be the end. There's going to be another one. Oh, oh gonna... yeah, that's true. There's like a 2000. They filmed the 2000 tape from 2000 of Jamie Kennedy, so he still looks like Scream Two era. <laughs> yeah. So now they got like a, a bunch of money pumped into like de aging 
that guy. Oh, oh, the, we oh, did it with yeah. Mark Hamill for The Mandalorian. We could do it with Jamie Kennedy for Scream 5. Hey, that- Sid. That would have been really good if Scream 4 was slightly different, but because Scream 4 deals so specifically with reboots and remakes, um, it doesn't it doesn't quite fit the like you think the franchise is over and then it's not. Yeah, I yeah. Did. You know, yeah. it's I, it's I I remember liking Scream 4, but it's a shame that Scream 4 nullifies this entire scene and kind of this whole movie because mm-hmm. this is no longer the concluding chapter of a trilogy. Right. Even though the movie treats it like it is and right. says that it is. Right. And I mean, it, 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 honestly, I, I'm kind of, if I'm Kevin Williamson, I'm aggressively offended at all of the trilogy talk in this because he's like, it's not, not my trilogy. Yeah. Bastards. Yeah. I, I, can, <laughs> I made this from the ground up and then you guys threw away my third chapter. I don't know what the hell this is. Sure. sure nothing sure. to do with me. So it is, it is slightly offensive how much the plot. And the marketing hinge on the fact that this is the concluding chapter of mm. Kevin Williamson's <laughs> Scream trilogy, you know? His vision finally yeah. coming to an right, end. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like the, the, the sequel trilogy rules are basically, the past is not safe. Forget what you know about the past. It's going to come back and bite you. No one is safe. I'll see you in heaven. As I was making yeah. my my notes, is like Scott Corelli probably sitting there. This flashes of Spider Man three now coming back to <laughs> like you remember you think <laughs> this one guy killed Uncle Ben, but it turns yeah. out it was actually a totally different guy. Billy Loomis had a butler. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's why I was I was pretty accepting of 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 uh, Spider Man three when I saw it the first time, uh, like when it first came out, because I was like, well, I've been here before. Like I just like I, I, I know what this is. All right, the thing is with Spider. I can accept it because it's like, well, it's it's a, it's a comic book movie where Scream has this thing of like, well, it's supposed to be a realistic portrayal, almost grounded, like, yeah, you know, right. postmodern and whatnot. But it's like, yeah, it's got a bit more, you know, Ghostface isn't Michael Myers, like he is, he, right. he's a scrambling idiot who comes flying after people and stuff. So then, when they yeah. go into that territory, it is like this does not gel. This is this is not the franchise to be trying to tackle all this kind of crap, right. in, but. Yeah, yeah, because the the whole the whole thing with with Scream, the the thing that makes it so subversive against all other slasher films, is that we're not following the killer. Every other slasher film, you follow the killer. You're like, what's Michael Myers up to now? What's Jason Voorhees up to now? What's Freddy Krueger up to now? And the victims change almost every movie. Whereas Scream flips that on its head. The 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 ghost face is different every movie. The victims are the ones that stay the same. It's like, Sydney's story. It's Sydney's story. There is a main cast of characters that we're following from story to story. Um, and then this one does kind of turn that around again in a way that like I'm not into. And it's interesting that you bring Saw up, Niall, because like Saw in the future would be a franchise that, in my opinion, really paid off on a crazy soap opera-like continuity. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> of, like following these crazy characters around. <laughs> but they're the bad guys this time. Right, right, right. Uh, and then we get my favorite stretch of the movie, personally, uh, the two Gales going through the underbelly of Hollywood trying to solve this mystery. Oh, this, this is like... If there was just a pitch now, like, well, we just did a sitcom. Or not even a sitcom, like, like a Veronica Mars-esque, you know, detective show. Yeah. Where it was Parker Posey and Courtney Cox, but one of them's playing a fictional version of the other one. It's like, go, make that. That's a great show. Yeah. <laughs> Who's like, I know, you, I know you better than you. I'm in the we. I know Veronica Mars better than Veronica Mars. And Veronica's like, shut up. You're so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's- I would love that Veronica Mars movie. If they want to do another Veronica Mars movie and it's that, oh my God. Let's do it. Let's do it. Rob Thomas, call us up. 
<laughs> and we uh, we get another big weird Hollywood cameo, like a Muppet movie kind of cameo. But it's Carrie Fisher mm. uh, as like a secretary, and like I mean, look, I'm never she's going, running the archives. She's running the archives. Yeah, I'm never going to say no to throwing Carrie Fisher in your movie. Mm-hmm. Like hell yeah. But like yeah, it's like okay. Yeah, yeah, she's she's playing uh, an actress who looks exactly like Carrie Fisher. It's like an Ocean's Twelve kind of movie, right? Yeah, totally. But lost the role of Princess Leia because she wouldn't sleep with George Lucas. Is that a weird joke to make? If that's like a dude you've known since you were like seventeen, yeah. I think it's an incredibly weird. Yeah, joke Yeah, it does make. not sit well. I don't think it, like no. particularly in modern climate, it definitely doesn't sit well. But even back in like two thousand, it was like nah, it's just it's off. Yeah, it's- it it really does. Like if I'm George Lucas, I'm just like. I, I would feel like kind of hurt, honestly, yeah, by that. Yeah. Um by, by that joke. Especially considering Carrie Fisher wrote this. She wrote this scene. I was gonna ask, did she punch this up? She didn't okay. just punch it up, she wrote the scene. Okay, that kind of makes me feel better about it. That yeah. it's like her being like her poking fun at, at the at, you know, and yeah. not like Aaron Kruger writing a joke. Wouldn't it be funny if I like, made Carrie Fisher say this? Oh yeah. No, she wrote this. Both scenes that she's in, she wrote. And I love this I love this about her. Um, found out her somebody went to her trailer because it's Carrie Fisher, so everybody wanted to hang out with her, right? Mm. And so she comes in, and they go into her trailer to go talk to her, and her trailer is completely empty. The only thing that she has in her trailer are six boxes of Fruit Loops, six boxes of Cheerios, and six cartons of cigarettes. <laughs> That's it. That's the only thing in her trailer. It was in her contract. Yeah, it was in her contract. That's what she wanted, which I just think I think is just so funny. <laughs> legend. Yeah, absolute legend. Well, just because the, the, the next bit of the plot, though, because then you have this looking into Maureen Prescott's, you know, two-year foray into Hollywood. But then, AKA Rena Reynolds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the fact that because got so Marina Marina Reynolds, but then you have Carrie Fisher, whose mother was Debbie Reynolds. And this is the right. mother of Sidney Prescott. So is it like oh, is wow, it some kind yeah. of intertextual joke in some way? Or this weird, like, yeah, the the showbiz legacy. It's int- I mean, there's a lot of weird layers to this of like Carrie Fisher playing this kind of weathered, cynical, oh, like, oh yeah, Rena Reynolds, she was in these B movies and then she got driven out of Hollywood. Yeah, just kind of, and we, you know, we talked about the dimension side of things. It, right. It's it's uneasy and it's and it's muddled. But I will say, this was when I locked into like this being like a an L.A. murder mystery, and mm-hmm. I started to enjoy it on its own merits. But yeah, not as enjoyable as like mm-hmm. the concluding chapter of the Scream franchise. Yeah, I mean, there are other like intertextual allusions. Just even the mo- most unpleasant one being, and I can't help but feel like it must have been intentional. But the fact that they have you know abuse going on behind the scenes in Hollywood, and then they have a director character called Roman specifically, and it, you can't help but feel like that's a Roman Polanski reference, like because sure. you know, and it just. It, but none of it fits because he's like a young dude. So it's like, are they doing Tarantino? It just yeah, none of it. Yeah, and it just it it just adds like a real element of unpleasantness too. You're like, yeah, screams usually a bit right. more. You know, dealing with people dying all the time. <laughs> it usually is a bit more <laughs> brevity to it. But this is like, yeah, you're dealing with like real stuff now. It's actually really unpleasant to have to think about all this, all this on top of other things. But uh, but at least at the same time, though, valid stuff to address as well. If the scream movie has to address something. It might as well be this. Like that. That's fair enough. But you know, I guess you just have to deal with that in your own way <laughs> as you come across it. Uh, we cut back to Sydney in the bathroom where she runs into Emily Mortimer, who like freaks out 
that's like, oh my god, you're the real Sydney. I've been playing you. And she is wearing the ghost face boots and has a ghost face mask. Mm-hmm. And you're stealing props as a souvenir, you know. And it's like laying it on so thick that she's the killer. Well, they, yeah, it, it, if, this, if they had stuck with her being one of the killers, then would we look back at this scene as like she was totally going to attack Sydney and she just got caught out at the wrong moment? I do like the idea of, you know, you were talking about her being like, you know, 90 pounds soaking wet and and how that's not particularly intimidating. I do really like the idea that she's the the co-conspirator of this, but is just really bad at it. Like, like just <laughs> hasn't been able to pull it off. And this is yet another example of her screwing up. Just not being good at being ghost face. Yeah, yeah I, just, I, I actually kind of like that. I think that's funny. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, she's a really interesting character. Emily Mortimer's character. Don't remember her name, but yeah, like that, that interaction is she has empathy, but it's kind of a weird. Like you, I, Sid really plays unsettled really well. She's like, "Boy, it's a shame this didn't work out, huh?" And Sid, he's like, "What do you mean? Like, what didn't work out? Right? Like, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this movie to exist." Mm. Right. And the scene that we talked about earlier, where she stumbles upon the set. And get asked to literally walk through her past trauma, yeah, and and deal with it head on, and has like the voices of Billy Loomis. And yeah, this this, this is really movie. this is where the film hits like, a real stride for me. It's like this is a good idea of yeah, you know, after a, a, an initial movie about like oh yeah, you know, people been influenced by films and it inspiring a cycle of real life violence, and then like, then that main character having to. <laughs> go into the movie of her own life and stuff like again it almost feels like this should have been Scream 2 they should have just like mm. escalated that straight away but considering the implication that it's like oh yeah we only had six weeks to get this thing churned out so uh, we ended up doing I mean, you know had to be shot in back lots and things like that fair enough but it's like oh they do it this way though this is actually a good story element that I think works really really well mm-hmm. it's one of the rare things about this movie that really feels like an organic cool logical conclusion to what had been being set up of this movie series being made about her life and now the conclusion is she has to like wander through it mm-hmm. and it's making her confront this stuff that she I never had the time to like really process because she's been too busy surviving and just moving forward mm. yeah uh, but more importantly listener when we visit sid's prop bedroom she has a big old creed poster on the wall <laughs> right of course <laughs> And it reminded me of, Scott, can you remember the band that she had on her wall that Billy walks past? It was like Susie and the Banshees or something like really like 90s. Yeah, I don't remember. Okay. It was something like oh, that. Oh, man, though. but like Susie and the Banshees is so much better than Creed, though. It's just like, oh, man, fictional Sydney's music takes is so much worse than uh, real life Sydney. Um, so do you guys want to get really upset? Um, oh, sure. yeah, sure. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, so this sequence <laughs> right now, this sequence on the the sets, the Woodsboro sets of Stu's house and Sydney's house and the whole thing. Originally, this was the third act. This was where the third act took place. This is where Roman reveals himself to be the killer. He reveals it in the room that is the recreation of his of of their mother's death, like murder. Mm. And that's where he reveals that he's the killer and the reason why and everything. And Emily Mortimer was playing her mother. And that was like part of their relationship as Ghostface co-conspirators is that Emily Mortimer was playing her mother in all of these scenes to make her feel like she's going crazy. Wow. Almost kind of shades of psycho. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so upset 
that the end of this movie doesn't take place on this set yeah. versus like the mansion like secret theater room like a random thing. like a scooby-doo house you know? yeah <laughs> i i am so upset that they they wasted this on this scene instead of saving it to the end and having it be the third act because yeah. that's so much better but what, what's, the, what's the rationale for changing that though like why 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 mix that it was just like ah, oh, just a jumble of scripts and it's like ah it's just the way yeah it i mean it was it, i think it was a lot of that and i think uh, you know Wes craven decided that it would be distracting to have Sydney have to deal with all of these memories about the past in the third act when she's supposed to be focused on figuring out who Ghostface is and stopping them. And so they decided to like bring this up earlier and have her deal with this stuff earlier in an initial attack and then have the third act take place in this mansion and then tie the secret room in with her mother's rape and all of that stuff so yeah it's a real shame i love sydney being chased through the prop house yes and like doors not being real doors yes. and almost like it's so much fun and yes. it's just great classic scream it would have been so much better as the third act of this mm. of like her running through these sets trying to get away from these two killers or this one killer while also simultaneously having to deal with the memory of all the things that she's done. With Ghostface taunting her in a way that is more personal yes. than ever. And we know because it's Roman, but at the time it's like, you don't deserve protection. Right. You're, you know, your mother and all this stuff. And it, it's really cool and it's emotional. And she she escapes the killer. Like, where where is it? The killer is gone. But Dewey's like, no, we, we believe you, Sid. We don't think you had anything to do with this. And then we cut back to uh, the scene that Al brought up earlier where Dewey and Gale and Pat Parker Posey visit John Milton's office, the producer. Yeah. I My feeling is, I think a better ending to this movie would be for it not to just be Roman, that there's Roman, and then he's the other killer, um, this producer. Oh, um, okay. Lance, that, Lance Hendrickson. The- yeah, that Lance Hendrickson is the other killer, and that he's been manipulating Roman by being like, oh yeah, like I'm your dad, using that relationship to make him create a scenario that he could base Stab 3 on. Yeah. I think would be a much better ending, and can you imagine how good Lance Hendrickson would be as like the final killer reveal in this movie? (laughs) Yeah, he's sort of underused here as just like a scumbag movie producer. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Whereas like if he was manipulating Roman and kills Roman straight off, Mm -hmm. right? And then is like, yeah, I I did things to your mother, and I don't care. I'll do it again. I'll keep doing it because I have all the power. You can't stop me, you know. And like that feeling, I think, would be so much more powerful than this stupid brother sister kind of retcon thing. kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, which I'm fine with the retcon as long as it's not what you're hanging the whole movie off of. Like if you do this retcon and then be like, "LOL, we just killed him." It's what it doesn't ultimately it doesn't yeah. matter. The true villain, the true person. You thought Marine was the reason that all of these things have happened to you, then you learn that it's Roman, and now you realize it actually wasn't Roman either. It was this guy, mm. and he's the ultimate villain. And if we take him down and stop his like reign of terror on Hollywood, all of this goes away. And I feel like that's such a stronger ending 
for this version of the movie. Um, but maybe it's just a little too real and not cartoony enough for uh, <laughs> what Dimension was. And maybe a little too uh, close to home yeah, for uh, the yeah. two executives leading Dimension. Yeah, well, we'll get into the ending. Because, yeah. like, you know, thoughts about like what Roman's doing and all that stuff. Yeah. But uh, Lance Hendrickson gets this, has this speech where he's like, yeah, when I saw Stab 1, that was when I connected the dots about Maureen, a.k.a. Rena Reynolds. And, like, doesn't take any responsibility. Like, yeah, like, I had parties. And, yeah, maybe stuff happened while she was at those parties. But... You either play the game or you go home. Right. Is his worldview is like, this is Hollywood. She couldn't handle it. Right. So she's the problem, not Hollywood. Mm. Right. We get back to Dewey's truck. We get a call from, quote, Sydney. It's Ghostface. I don't know how many times they do this trick in this movie where it's Ghostface pretending to be someone who's like, oh, okay, wh- whatever you say, Sid, this party I didn't know about. Okay, let's go. Yeah. yeah. I think in that one, too, it was so egregiously, like, very obviously not Sydney as well. But it's like, oh, yeah. no, no. This is Yeah, so they go straight to Milton's house and it's like last day of school vibes. They're like, it's mm-hmm. over. Uh, Ro- is, it, is it Roland who brings up the secret screening room? Roman, yeah. Roman, that's Roman. right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's so this mansion. This is the same mansion where they shot um, Halloween H two O. That was like the, the the school campus. This was a school, an entire school in one movie, and now it's just some <laughs> dude's house in this movie, which is kind of crazy to think about. Like, but yeah, the, the, the Scream franchise is a history of huge houses, like the, yeah. like, the like <laughs> true Prescott House and Scream One. I was rewatching it recently. I was like, Jesus Christ, what does the what the dad do? Like, what, how, how's he this rich? Yeah, and even like yeah, Sid's house, like the little place in the country he's got, and this is like. Is this a witness protection? Well, not witness protection place. Where is this? Like, is she yeah. funding this? How can she afford this? Like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Gail follows. A Roman goes down to the basement. Gail kind of trepidatiously follows. Or not Gail. Uh, Parker Posey. Gosh, she's so in the right. It's Parker Posey. The, uh, yeah. That, she like, goes oh no. It, yeah. Yeah. And then like Gail comes and finds Roman's body in the freezer. Right. Or and- the, it's just a coffin, like a like a, oh, okay. like a prop coffin. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that, I'll be honest, I hadn't watched this movie in a long time. So like, I completely forgot that Roman was the killer. Oh, oh wow. Okay. I just remember it had something to do with Maureen Prescott. Mm. So I was like, oh, he died. That's disappointing. And so like, I totally fell for it. Like, I, I <laughs> nice. wish that it was one of those things. Like, I wish I could have forgot that Roman was the killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Mortimer, they bump into each other. They're like, we have to get out of here. Roman's dead. And we find out that, yes, she is duplicitous and she is kind of having this facade. But in this version of the movie, it's like, I didn't have sex with that pig, Roman, to get killed by you two. And it's like, just like, for me, the wrong kind of ugly Yep. of like, that's who this character was. And it's like, just randomly was just like, uh, I don't know. It's like, and then she's immediately killed afterwards. Yeah. And yeah, it's really mean. It's just, it's like a really mean death of like, not only are we going to kill her, but we're also going to just like make her the worst. Um, like just, just like represent everything that we're talking about in this movie. That's the thing. But it's kind it, of like a victim shamey kind of way. Right, totally. This move, this movie is very victim shamey. It's very, the message is very muddled in terms of like the social politics going on here, the message here i don't real ultimately it's very confusing and that's one of the 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 bits in the movie where you're just like what 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 is that how does that link to everything else that you've been talking about where you're supposedly villainizing this stuff but then you're villainizing her for playing the game Mm. like i don't i i just yeah i don't know i don't know i think that that, not into it that one does strike me emily mortimer's as like 
like reshoot or like yeah we decided she was supposed to be the one of the killers and then at the last minute we decided to change it so we just quickly wrote this in the morning and then a lot like yeah. hallie where mm-hmm. it it undercuts his character and retroactively makes them so just non-active in the movie yeah and kind of like portrays the actor playing them yeah mm-hmm. um and very quickly, uh, Tyson, like, Ghostface is, like, attacking, slashes Dewey's arm. Tyson stabbed. We get one of my favorite moments in the whole movie where Ghostface is chasing Tyson. And he's like, oh, you motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really good use of ADR. I'm just yeah, like, oh, yeah. you motherfucker. And then the rug. <laughs> so good. And he's thrown off the roof. And so this is where I, I want to introduce something, because right after this, we have uh, Parker Posey's killed in, like, the secret soundproof room that's a right. lot like Scream 2. Mm. Yeah. And also, also a lot like um, oh, what uh, uh, the 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 hotel the motel movie. Um, oh, uh, bad times. Bad times at the El Royale. Yeah, very sure. similar to bad times at the El Royale. Mm. So, so three in a row with Emily Mortimer and Tyson and Parker Posey, we have these three really cool, interesting characters in a row mm-hmm. that are immediately killed off mm-hmm. in really boring ways, extremely boring ways, yeah. and it take and it takes the air out of the movie. Right. The movie becomes less fun. Right. When Parker Posey's like the last new person to die, right. we think. And it's we're just left with the three leads. Yeah. And so this is kind of and when Patrick Dempsey. And Patrick Dempsey. Yeah, <laughs> I felt the the universe shrinking. Yes. And it hit me that now two movies, soon to be three movies in a row, and we'll talk about Scream Four. Mm-hmm. We introduce these cool new characters and then they're all dead by the end, and we're just left with the three leads who are just getting longer in the tooth. I say that with respect. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the characters more so than the actors. Right. And like this is so weird, but I think about like Fast and the Furious, <laughs> and about how that the reason that franchise has legs is because you keep introducing new people, and it feels like you you know you know Sydney's being Dom, you never leave Dom or Sydney, right? But I don't know. That was just kind of where my thoughts was wandering as the movie started. No, that's down. fair enough because yeah, right, right enough going into Scream Five now. Or I think mm-hmm. they announced they're just calling it Scream again, which is like one of those. Yeah, like, it's just called Scream. Yeah, never, never a fan of that. It's like, what, what are you doing? But um, yeah, this is like so. There's no one from any of the sequels coming in. It's all just original cast, and no one, no one's. No, no, no. There's, there's. So there's Randy's sister. She's coming back. Yeah, and then Dewey's deputy buddy in Scream Four. Okay. Um, oh, Marley Shelton. Yeah, she's coming back as well. She's in. She's in the new screen. Okay. Uh, so speaking There's of Dewey, yeah. uh, so Dewey arrives, goes to face at the bottom of the stairs, and we get that crazy knife throw. Yeah, where the handle hits the the forehead. It's very silly. I, just, I distinctly <laughs> remember that being a trailer shot. Like I remember yep. that being like when. Well, the time when Scream Three came out, like I wasn't that fussed when it was released in cinemas, mm-hmm. but I know my brother went to see it, and I've, well, when he saw it, my first question was like, "So what happens with that knife thing?" Because like that was the most <laughs> enticing shot of like the Stewie get like stabbed in the head or whatever. Just there's a jam in the gun he's holding, and he's like, "Now nah, just butts him." Like the butt of the knife hits him in the head. I was like, "Okay, fair enough." <laughs> well, <laughs> just, the gun thing would have been crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Dewey and Gail are knocked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cops are having a fun little pizza party. Yeah, <laughs> good for them. Yeah, uh, back in the sheriff, back in Kincaid's office. Oh, by the way, I just want to say we we already missed some of the moments, but Patrick Dempsey's like main accent is kind of coming out. Mm. There's a part where he's like, "It was her daughter's phone. Her yeah. daughter made the phone call," and I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> Yeah, there it is. Interesting. <laughs> uh, and speaking to Kincaid, Sydney finds like the her file. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, Kincaid has been keeping this really creepy, obsessive newspaper clipping highlighter file, including her publicity photo from Scream <laughs> 2. Right. Maybe that was used for the Cassandra play. They're like, look, while we're here, can we take a photo? <laughs> it's like, a, it's like a, a ticket stuff. Do we ever find out why he has that? <laughs> nope. Zero percent. Okay, great. Well, there's other little things too, like they just plant in, like, because he's got the Kiss Me Deadly poster up on his wall. Right. That's right. And it's just yeah. to be like, he's in the movies. Maybe no, we, yes. ne- we never learn. <laughs> we never learn where that file comes from. But they sure are dating at the end of the movie. Yeah, so, well, it seems like that. Anyway. I think at the end of the right. movie, like, I, the ending, the ending scene of this movie is so strange to me. But we'll get to that. But yeah. it's, like, it's such an yeah, odd we'll get to that. vibe. It feels like something out of a yeah. freaking David Lynch movie or something. In some yeah, ways. and and we get a call. We get another Ghostface call where Ghostface is making Sydney question her reality. Mm-hmm. Like, am I really here? Am I just the voice in your head? Who was really your mother? And Sydney's like, you know what? Fuck this. And she like goes into the dash. She pulls out like a tiny gun yeah and it's like i'm i'm ending i'm this. taking care of business yeah yeah that's why i'm here <laughs> <laughs> that's why i came down from my like my my mountain that's why i put my outfit on <laughs> yeah so she drives to the house she finds dewey and gail she points the gun at Gail's face and says your turn to scream asshole yeah, yeah. <laughs> and unloads on him right so my monkey brain lizard brain like moviegoer watching the movie was like hell yeah sure of course <laughs> Yeah, but then very quickly, I'm like, wait, that what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, because it means it means nothing because she doesn't know who this person yeah. is, and it's not the same person from any of the other ones because they're all dead. Time so, to end these Star Wars. Yeah. So mm. what the hell are you talking about, Cindy? <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like uh, Ian Kruger that maybe like oh, I've I've only watched the Scream movies once, so like that's a thing, right? They, they say Scream in it a bunch of times. It's like no, no, no. It's like. You don't have to actually say the title scream. Like it's like, no, 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 it'll be good, it'll be a good beat. Like, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. But it's good. It's kind of like you said earlier, Niall. Like it's Sydney has a really interesting relationship with quote ghost face because I'm sure consciously or subconsciously, when she hears Roger L. Jackson's voice or when she sees the ghost face shape like lunging at her, is it registering to her as like one like kind of nightmare? being yeah like yeah. her her literal like shadow or fear manifested and it kind of doesn't matter who it is because it's just some asshole she's gonna put a bullet in mm. yeah i think it will be yeah. just like like the the image of a accumulating trauma over the years like everything just adds more to the specter of Ghostface for her really doesn't it so mm-hmm. yeah it just keeps building up on her mm. uh kincaid arrives we have that standoff sydney pockets the gun they like we have like a weird fight between Kincaid and Sydney, and then Sydney follows Ghostface to the screening room. And this was really interesting. For the first time, I think in the franchise, we just have Roger L. Jackson without a voice filter, yeah. like talking to Sydney. Uh, like think, this was my plan all along. And it was like really weird. I think there's one bit yeah. in Scream Two where someone is someone's talking on the phone. I think it's Sarah Michelle Geller, and she's talking mm-hmm. on the phone, and then he, from behind her, he goes like, "My pleasure." And I remember that sticking out to me has been very odd because it's like, oh, I guess That's, it's the mod- the modifiers in the mask, or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very strange. I I I would believe that Roman, the guy who invented the multi voice changer, <laughs> would also be able to like build a voice changer into the ghost face mask. I don't know that I believe that Mickey or Mrs. Loomis could have done that. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't know. So we kind of talked about the ending throughout the episode but this is when it's revealed that the killer is roman mm-hmm. and roman is not unlike blofeld played by christoph waltz uh, <laughs> inspector it was me james i was the architect of your pain yeah. yes 
it was me all along. And this, yeah, the, the, this speech is just like, this is the specter that now hangs over this movie for me. Whereas in that like, there's a lot to enjoy about it. But for years, I would just throw Scream 3 out altogether. Yeah. Because of this because revelation. It, yeah, it retcons that. I always knew that, you know, so I, I came to Woodsboro, found out that my mom was really Maureen Prescott and had this perfect life with my perfect party of five stepsister. And so I trained Billy Loomis. I showed him the home movies and directed him mm-hmm. and orchestrated everything that happened. It was all my fault. And in this movie's defense, I do kind of enjoy that the big bad of the series seems to be like an obnoxious, full of himself male movie nerd auteur. <laughs> yeah. I think that makes sense. I like that. Mm. But yeah, I, I didn't like it when it happened in Spectre, and I'm not crazy about it now. I, I'm not a big fan of like all knowing architects that all those interesting characters that you thought were making individual decisions, it was actually this like guy in a cloak pulling the strings the whole time. Yeah. Right. The thing is, like, I think there, there is a way to potentially fix this for me personally. Because it's also that thing of, too, like, oh, yeah, so he has to be related to Sydney in some way, and it has to be this long, convoluted thing about families and stuff like that. And it's kind of like where, you know, with the Halloween franchise, and end up going like, oh, Michael Myers goes after his family specifically. So that's why Laurie right. Strode was related to him. And then Jamie, now his niece, he's going to, it's just like, why? Why can't I just be just random guy killing people and stuff? Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. that been a thing in horror sequels as they go on. The fact that it's Scream, the franchise that knew all the tropes of horror movies, then falls into it face first, seemingly not knowing that this is like the tropiest crap you could possibly do. It would, to me, it'd be like, why could, you know, the fix would have to be like, Roman comes out with this whole revelation. And then it turns out at the end that he was actually lying about it. He says he is a stab fan. He's a, he's obsessed with Sydney, and he's uh, gaslighting he's like, oh. her into believing that he's like, oh yeah, it was me the whole time, and your mother did this, and you know, all this kind of stuff because he wants inserting to, himself, yeah, inserting yeah. himself into the narrative when he actually has nothing to do with it. Like that, like that. that would that work. Is good. Yeah, that would work for me. But as it is. Unless they do something in Scream Five, they go like, "Oh yeah, that's actually what happens." It's- but yeah, you're you're right. It becomes kind of the 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 hacky tropey slasher movie that Scream One was lovingly, but also like lampooning. Yeah, right. Yeah, or calling attention to. It just right. feels like there should be some kind of level of a twist to it, but it's just like, no, it's just yes. we've just gone into campy soap opera territory, and it's like, yeah, yeah, long lost brother. Yeah, it's just it's ter- it's terrible. <laughs> it's an absolutely terrible. Yeah, twist. I mean, you could have you could have done that ending and had my Lance Henriksen ending. Why? What with him just being like that was the stupidest plot line. I it, I mean, it was just mm. that was his idea. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, you know, um, it was always a bad idea. He was never a good director. <laughs> he made all of that up. You know, yeah. Like, but you instead, Lance Henriksen, movies, they're all terrible. They're all about Long yeah. Lost Brothers and stuff. It makes no sense. <laughs> Yeah, but instead, Lance Henderson is pulled out from mm-hmm. a corner, just like Sydney's dad in Scream 1, right. and is killed, and then we get, like... Final uh, cut. Yeah, yeah, final cut, and we get, like, a... LOL. <laughs> we get, like, a chase of the house, the power goes out. My favorite part of every Scream movie is when Sid becomes Ghostface, mm-hmm. and, like, stalks the killer and chases the killer, Yeah, and, yeah, like, she takes him out. Yeah, uh, she's, with an ice pick mm-hmm. with a fucking ice she's a fucking savage that he yeah. has got we'll also say to uh notably no uh surprise sydney like that's mm-hmm. big thing in the first two movies like that's the line that does indicate that this is the beginning of the oh, revelations yeah. and then like this one like nah as if, again even kruger's like i only saw those other two movies like one or two times like i didn't even realize <laughs> yeah, that, that was supposed yeah. to be a recurring bit <laughs> but yeah and, and and i'll put it out a while ago but i really i like the handhold it 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 just it's it's a cool Sydney moment, mm-hmm. and she kind of keeps her like humanity and her mercy 
even though she's like, I gotta, I gotta kill you, dude. Like, yeah, I, I really like the moment. I don't know that I think it's particularly earned in the movie that we have, but, but I think in in and of itself, I don't have an issue with the moment. It's just like when you put it in this movie, I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, cool. I mean, all right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Okay. It's almost, it Uh, feels like it could be like, um, you know, the fact that Sydney still does have her dad is around, but if it was, if he had died or something, it'd almost be like, a, you know, like the doctor and the master in kind of ways. It's like, yes, we're at odds, but like, you're the only one left. So that kind of yeah. thing. But it, it so is more now. It's like, yeah, it's a bit weird. It's like you're going over and holding this guy's hand, even though it's, is it a family thing or is it just like, yeah, uh, you know, you know what? I don't hold it against you. <laughs> like, like, what? what, what <laughs> hey, it's, it's, it's an odd moment. Like, the whole ending is so odd. The, yeah, yeah, it is. And then we get an even weirder, in my opinion, epilogue, yeah. where it's like cut to this. Are, are, are we, do you have anything else before well, we I was just gonna say, Please. I was just going to say, the, the moment where he comes walking out with the blanket draped over him, sure, like pretending to be the dead mother, and like, it's the silliest shit. <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, no, yeah, just to reiterate. It's yeah. just so silly. And he just, he whips it off, and then he's ghost face under it. So he's wearing two layers of disguise. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, it's so silly. I could even see at that point. Yeah. And then the 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 unstoppable like the the, the bulletproof vest. Oh, it, it's weird. Bit, yeah, where Dewey's just oh, shooting yeah. him over and over again. He's like, ah, it's my movie. I want my movie. And she has to remind the the police officer to shoot to aim for the head where the where the <laughs> where the yeah. bulletproof vest is not. Um, it, it, yeah. it feels like they kind of wrote themselves like, well, in the first two movies you had to have the the headshot moment. So we can't just right. do that again. So what can we do now? It's like, well, let's right. make it a joke. And it's like, well. Like you, you didn't. There was no tension in the room initially, anyway. But that, now you're yeah. just—it's fallen into like broad comedy farce, where it's like, what is yeah. this anymore? This is terrible. The only thing I like about that moment is that Dewey kills him because you would think that doesn't make any sense. It should be—it should be her. It should be um, the protagonist. Yeah, it should be the protagonist. But the reason I like it is because her new brother killed her old brother. Ah, and so i kind of like that like dewey is her brother you know and has been for since tatum was murdered um he's been sort of her like adopted brother in a lot of ways there's this really beautiful moment when she's being chased through the house and she doesn't even know if he's there or if he can hear her but she just cries out for dewey yeah Mm. and it's just such a i really like sells that like he he is her family now. there's a real like thing too when she comes down there's no like tension like i could be anybody it's as right. soon as Sydney shows up, she's like, I know it's not Dewey. Like, I 100% yeah. trust this man with, and Gail as right. well. She's like, yep, yeah, you know, we're, there, there is no doubt in my mind that these two are safe. So that is right, really, sure. that is, it's a nice progression of their relationships as the, as the movies go on. Um, in some ways though, like, it, because of the, the legacy of Tatum throughout the, the movies, it's like, oh yeah, the, you know, Dewey's sister. I was actually kind of curious in that, uh, when the, the scene of Sydney going through the stab three set, they actually have like the doggy flap. There's a blood smear on it. And, right. And just, There's also broken beer bottles on the ground. Yeah. She's like, what is Stab Three? Is it like a remake of Stab One? <laughs> like what? Because they got like you know, the <laughs> Maureen's room as well, like, drenched in blood and stuff. And I, I've just got really like, what? What? Yeah. What's the plotline of this film? Like, <laughs> yeah, we have no idea. I don't think we ever find out. It's just called Return to Woodsboro. That's all we know. Yeah. Yeah. Because it does feel like oh yeah, Sydney. I guess in that fictional Sydney in that movie is going back to their room with the greed poster and stuff and maybe there would be some element of like i'm a bit old for all this now like you know it's, it's weird of uh, someone in their 20s going back to stay in the room they stayed in as a teenager and stuff but it, yeah. it, it seems like 
Unless you you got into like a, a meta script where it's like, yeah, yeah, this the killer in Stab Three is also recreating the murders of Stabs One and Two and stuff. It feels like right, you, right. you get into some real like friggin' you know Russian doll level. You know, the thing is, maybe if they had more time. They could have played with that. That could have actually been like a really clever thing that they did, but they kind of almost do in the beginning of Scream Four, where they have like a kind of Russian doll opening mm-hmm. sequence as well. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys will talk about that next time, though, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we cut to uh, we cut back to Sydney's house. She's mm-hmm. walking her dog again. We get the marriage proposal between Gail and Dewey, where he's like carved the ring out of uh, Gail's book. I, I do enjoy this line. Which he, he's like, "I know we're probably not going to work. It's probably not going to happen." But what if we're wrong? Yeah. 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 And yeah. it's it's a good line. And it's I think, you know, it's a little I, I can't think of another slasher movie that ends with a marriage proposal. Yeah. True. Very true. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big I really like the moment where I'm gonna forget about Kincaid being there with the popcorn. I'm just gonna that that didn't happen to me. That's the one. <laughs> it is it's, it's, it's very odd. It's like, oh, I guess those guys they they did have a thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like Sid does like uh white men with lustrous hair. That is her type. Mm. So <laughs> that's true. And then we get so it the we we create the shot where she's coming back and locking the door and doing all the security stuff, and she stops and she's like, "No, I'm gonna wait." And then when Kim Cade's like, "Hey, you want to go watch a just watch a movie?" She sees the door open and she's staring at it, and she the camera closes the the cut to black, but we assume that she leaves the door open. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like. Like Scott said, a lot of these moments that are in isolation are really strong, but maybe they don't connect to a coherent whole. Right. But that is a really cool final shot ending of for me about this the this trilogy about Sidney Prescott. Right. Mm-hmm. Of like, I'm I don't have to leave the door open. I feel safe. I'm okay. Right. Cut to black door by Russ Craven. Yeah. 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 No, like it actually I think it's just it's the the tone of it is so odd to me like it really it um it reminded me of like it's an episode of the sopranos where it ends on a one of tony's dreams and it's like him like in the dream he he can't speak english he's speaking italian and he comes up to this house and he looks up in a stairwell and there's a silhouette of like this old woman staring at him and it's all creepy and silent and it's just very odd and it just ends on that note and it just this it feels so unlike the endings of the first two screen movies and it's so still and eerie that's it, it kind of it almost creeped me out more than anything else in the movie. It was just like, is this really happening? <laughs> oh, interesting. Is this the yeah. is this a dream ending? Is there gonna be some wow, final yeah. twist to this or something? And again, it is also like, oh yeah, Kincaid's here all of a sudden. And like it's just mm-hmm. it, it just felt like such a a tonal shift in comparison to what's gone before that it was like in theory, like as a final note for Sydney Prescott, it is good. It's like, yeah, yeah, she, you know, she's able to, to leave the door open now. Like she's, mm-hmm. she, like the, the the trauma is dissipating and whatnot. But yeah, it's just the it's, it's the way it's filmed. It just seems so like oh, it's, it's really weird. And then the fact that it, yeah. it you know it, it kicks into more kind of scream music, you know, as the uh, the credits start to roll, it also would indicate like, is it not the end? Is there something else? Yeah, you know, it's it's yeah, it was just about all over I- the place for me. I I appreciate the use of red right hand as like the the supposedly at least at the time as the final like you know act out yeah, just like born ultimatum sort of thing yeah but like um because it's sort of become the de facto scream like theme song mm. but it is it is a tonal tonally it's a weird choice from where they leave us and then we roll into red right hand and you're like I'm, okay, I thought this was a happy ending. This is a little yeah. confusing. Because like, you wanted to bring back the real big fish. Uh, I think I love you. Cover? Uh, <laughs> no. Well, that's less than Jake. Less despite, than Jake. Despite what Napster or whatever would have you believe, 
Because it always says real big fish. Or the Mighty Mighty Boston. Mighty Mighty Boston. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, I don't want them to bring back anything. I want them to do one of the other songs on the on the thing. Yeah. I don't know. The, the, the end credit song is supposed to be, you know, filmmaking, all these things. The things that follow on from, you know, things that went before are still part of the, of the narrative as well. So th- this does end right. on a note. The fact that it kicked back into Red Right Hand is just like, it's not over. It's still yeah. scream. It's never going to be over. It's kind of like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Maybe you should have had like silence for a, a, a bit as the credits rolled, or yeah, anything, anything but that. Um. All right. Well, that's uh, that's Scream Three. So, Niall, uh, where? Well, thank, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank uh, you for Fazio. this. Uh, yeah, well, this journey through this uh, this okay movie. Um. I think it's it, it's, it's, it's it, everything you said in the preamble. Scott of like the you know the preamble to the film being made is very telling in that mm-hmm. there's good ideas in this thing and the whole concept of Sydney and the the characters from the first two movies having to be on the set of a stab movie that's recreating the murders that they've gone through is a great mm-hmm. idea for a screen movie and it, it, it it's yeah it just it's just so rushed and it's so yeah not that well thought through <laughs> and yeah. it, it it does not it, you can tell it's not the same screenwriter you can just sort of tell that it's, that it's like yeah we're just throwing whatever we got at the screen because i guess we had we had a release date we had to meet and that's it <laughs> like this is this is the movie and it, it, it was one of those kind of things of like if you had the choice of we're making a screen movie against the odds of the columbine thing and all you know these accusations of copycat violence it's like well you know you didn't have to make a screen movie that year, you know, you could have just left it for like five years or ten years. You don't have the obligation to have it out straight away. But uh, I guess they've like, yeah, dimensions is like, there's money to be made. So, right, hammer right. this thing out. Um, all right. Well, uh, Niall, where where can people uh, find you if they want to hear more of you on a on some podcasts? Uh, well, I am uh, I'm one of the hosts of Bat Minutes. Uh, it was a podcast where we break down and talk about the Batman movies uh, from 1989 onwards, uh, one minute at a time. Uh, I guess uh, I don't know how quick you guys have a turnaround for these episodes, but like we are just about to begin airing Batman and Robin. So uh, it's, it's been it's quite a journey recording that movie. I have to come and talk about this like, you know, very flawed screen movie, and I'm having to every week analyze acclaimed as one of the worst films ever made batman and robin mm-hmm. so it's been a it's been a hell of a year for me so far i can tell you that <laughs> well uh that's awesome and I, I definitely recommend everybody check out batman if you are a fan of the uh starting with tim burton's uh, batman 89 check check those out because uh the the show's great and uh and we're, we're definitely gonna have to get john finn on the show at some point um, so that I can uh, complete the Batman collection over here on <laughs> Franchiseography. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us, uh, guys. Check out our Patreon page, duelinggenre.com slash support. Follow us on Twitter at Franchiseography. And of course, share your Scream franchise memories with us by emailing Franchiseography at duelinggenre.com. And we will read those on uh, our next between episode following Scream 4. So thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we'll touch again next week. Bye. Bye.
Jesus. 